The history of television is a history of failure. For every television series that lasted years and years, there were dozens that lasted only one season or less. But did they deserve to die? Or were they... Cancelled too soon? To the Cancel Too Soon Awards. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for The Rap, IGN, Bloody Disgusting, Critically Acclaimed, Everybody Calls Me Bibs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I do some of those things, too. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, happy, happy anniversary. That's right. We started this podcast th- three years ago? Two years ago now. Three years Three ago. Three years ago now. Wow. We just finished our, our third That's right. this is our third award Dude, show. God, this is so crazy. <laughs> okay, so we, we don't do our award show at the end of the year. We started this podcast uh, at the end of April, beginning of May. And, uh, yeah, so that's when we do our awards. We do a overview of all the best, worst, and weirdest shows we've seen in the last year. Everything. And we've had some good and some bad and some pretty friggin' weird, I tell you. <laughs> you, you're going to tell me, because we're going to talk about uh, our favorites, the one that stuck with us, uh, and uh, we have a lot of categories to get through, so let's take a little walk down memory lane, mm. and let's get started with one of my favorite categories, mm. best theme song. Well, and let's explain to the kids what a theme song is. You see... <laughs> Shows still have theme songs. They, yeah, they still have theme songs. Yeah. A theme uh, song used to be a little bit more important to a show. Um, it established the show's identity and tone very quickly. Um, oftentimes, if you've never seen a show before, you didn't rewatch it on DVD or anything. You just kind of plunked down and saw whatever episode of Hill Street Blues you had. So... Gilligan's Island theme song, which explains a very stupid premise, is kind of important because otherwise yeah. you're going to wonder what the hell is going on. No, we've, uh, it's been said before that the golden standard is still Gilligan's Island and the Brady Bunch. Mm-hmm. Are the two best theme songs because they're really catchy. Mm-hmm. Everybody can sing them years later whether they've seen the show or not. And they really succinctly explain the premise of the show. Yeah. Now, I think there's a lot of other great ways to do theme songs. Some of the best theme songs ever uh, establish tone. Like mm-hmm. the X-Files, you hear that theme song... And you know what kind of show you're going to get, mm. even if there's no actual like dialogue explaining it. Although if you do watch it, you'll pick up on the basic gist of the premise <laughs> if you're watching that theme yeah, song. Yeah. So we have a bunch of different theme songs that Whitney and I both really, really liked. How we decided this was we each picked our top five in each category. Uh, the ones that we both picked were considered uh, at least, if, if there was only one, that's the winner. Uh-huh. If there were more than one, we it's... gauged each other's mutual interest. <laughs> um, and then we just sort of filled out as evenly as we could between our picks. Yeah, it's uh, it's not entirely scientific, but what the hey, it's our show. It's just us. <laughs> yeah. we're, the one, we're the only ones who actually watched all the shows. That's, as far as we know. Yeah, if anyone else watched all the shows in their entirety along with us, uh, kudos. Good, good on you. Thanks for coming yeah. on this weird journey with us. Some of those were hard to find, so we're pretty impressed. Um, but uh, yeah, so let's talk about our mm. number five runner-up. Mm. Uh, this was one that Whitney championed really hard. 
Like this is not not just a theme song, but a show. He really, really, really liked. It is the very buzz cut MTV energetic theme song to The Edge. Whitney, why did you pick this one? Well, you listen to that theme song, and it doesn't sound like it's a comedy show, does it? It sounds uh, like something that's definitely made for teenagers. May, yeah, well, that's teenagers for sure. Find that's it for cool. sure. Yeah, like you could see somebody like eating jerky to that sort of thing in a t- TV commercial. But uh, it, I think it's knowing it's a comedy show and getting that kind of theme music. Know you know what kind of sort of confrontational comedy you're getting, and I think mm-hmm. the edge. Uh, appropriate to its name, uh, was able to give you that confrontation. It's a really violent show. It really and, is. And I think the the theme song begets that violence. It's really sort of scattered and, and frantic and, yeah, really kind of encapsulates not just the era but the tone of the show. We, when we look well. back at the 90s and we think about what the 90s was trying to call edgy, mm. a lot of people think of Poochie from The Simpsons. And, right. and there was a lot of that, but there were also shows that genuinely did have an edge mm. shows that were more violent shows that were more sexual mm. and to the extent that people were still legitimately shocked or offended yeah and yeah. not not offended because you didn't handle a story right but offended because we specifically set out to offend you mm. and this is one of those shows it was a little hit or miss but the hits were really really good and yeah, you're right. right this theme song tells you exactly what kind of 90s show it is yeah, yeah. <laughs> you did have to specify that it is a 90s show very 90s uh the next runner-up mm. is another one that you championed Mm. And I don't disagree, but I kind of hate how catchy this song is. Well, and that's the only basis I'm going on, is how catchy it is. And what is it? Uh, It's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids. Yeah, this is one of those songs that got really stuck in my head for a while. It's like the it's like my mother the car. I I don't like that show. <laughs> but I can sing you the theme song and I think Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids uh again, it, it it's very of its time. It's mm. meant to appeal to teenagers. It explains the premise. However, it's really friggin' strange, but it gets it. Mhm. Uh, when you accompany it with the visuals, it's the kind of this kind of uh, rock and roll montage. It's the Partridge it's, Family, but it's animated, it's and they really got a, a vaguely sort of, old west sort theme. of rocky, freewheeling kind of theme song that uh, is better than the show because the show is the, is trash. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Uh, there was one, there's one show I almost championed, I almost fought for mm-hmm. here, and. It was also really catchy, but it was catchy in a depressing way. I'm not even going to bother playing a clip, but the mm. theme song for Benji, Zax, and the Alien Prince oh. <laughs> is so, like, dingy and sad that I couldn't <laughs> Just quite like, get it out. Well, even the show is kind of dingy and sad. But instead, uh, and we're running up on uh, shows that we all oh. really, really stood by, uh, our, our third runner-up mm. is 
a musical show, and its theme song is really catchy, really cool, and I really want to talk about how they handle it on the actual TV show proper because it's super mega weird. Mm-hmm. It is Randy Newman's theme song to Cop Rock. <laughs> Okay, Cop Rock, once again, and we're going to be talking about Cop Rock several times on this show, so don't worry. But <laughs> Cop Rock rem- is quite striking, isn't it? Cop Rock was a cop show mm. that was also a musical, but it wasn't like a Brooklyn Nine-Nine fun, you know, happy cop show. It was a dark and was, compelling cop like a, show. Yeah, like, like the, the same tone as Law & Order, but yeah, with musical numbers. It's kind of dark rock and roll musical numbers. Some were really bright and funny. Some were very strange. Yeah. Um, the one song that stands out is the Baby Merchant song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> about a fellow who who sells babies on the black market and he sings a song about it. Yeah, it's super mega weird. And in the opening credits, Randy Newman is singing this. It's a catchy song. It's a mm. Randy Newman song. When you're under the gun. But what's weird about it is this is the part of the show. It's one of only two parts in the show where they acknowledge the falseness Mm. of the musical numbers where they know yeah. that that's fake because the entire cast out of character completely out of character just hanging around in the st- like they're filming in the studio yeah they're just they're filming just Randy Newman playing this yeah. yeah and just all the actors come in and they're giggling and it doesn't matter if they hate each other on the show mm. they're just having fun with the musical part this, I'd love this to theme see that song with... is really important to let you know that like yeah this is gonna get weird so, well, and it's okay to um, accept the music that's about to come, yeah, because the cast accepts it. Also true. I'd also true. See, We're all having a good time yeah. here. I would love to see this type of opening, not necessarily musical, but just sort of all of the characters out of costume and out of makeup. Mm-hmm. Uh, for like a science fiction show, yeah, like Battlestar like Galactica. You know, well, there's, where there's something where there's a lot of aliens, so we get to see what the actors look like under the makeup, and they're just sort of hanging out and having coffee. And I don't know. Part of me would rather they stay in the makeup, as though that's just the character. Oh, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> it's just Quark having a cup of tea, like that. Ah. But he's in New York. So yeah, yeah, it's fine. Um, okay, and now our our last runner up, the one that came this close to winning, mm. this close, and it is like. The Brady Bunch or Gilligan's Island, it's a theme song that tells you everything you need to know about the show, but the show is so mind-bogglingly stupid, you can't believe it's the actual show. (laughs) And it's kind of catchy. It's, Where's Rodney? Where's Rodney? What a childhood I had. My mother breastfed me through a straw. Where's Rodney? My old man took me to the zoo. They thanked her for returning me. Where's Rodney? Yeah, last week I looked up my family tree. Two dogs were using it. That's the story of my life. No respect. Okay, to recap, Where's Rodney was a failed pilot about a kid who 
idolized Rodney Dangerfield. Mm. And whenever he was having trouble in his middle school, he would wish for Rodney Dangerfield to appear. And Rodney Dangerfield would be teleported away from whatever he was doing at the time Uh and end up in the kid's bedroom to give the kid advice. You write a theme song for that. Like, what do, you, what do you do with that? Can you imagine the theme song writers, whoever they were, just getting that premise going, oh, God. It sounds like, uh, who is, was it DeBarge who did uh, Who's Johnny? Oh, that, that yeah, it does. Like 85 or 86. It has that vibe, because it's around the same time. So it's really upbeat, and it's really kind of fun. And, yeah, it, it does. It was DeBarge. DeBarge. You're right. It it does sort of encapsulate in a really acceptable sort of way mm-hmm. this show that I cannot accept. <laughs> you know, it's a Saturday Night Live sketch that should never have gotten this long. Mm. And that's exactly the theme song it is. It tells you exactly what kind of show it is. It is almost a, an act of art criticism. <laughs> that it tells you, like, and this is the only way you can possibly get on board with this show, is if you just like, okay, here's Rodney. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> but our number one pick mm. is a show with a very malleable theme song, a mm. show that establishes a great sense of multiple tones contrasting. Uh it is the classic mm. theme song to Kolchak, the Night Stalker. How that like but no I love how this song like it sets up like everything's fine just a normal uh-huh. day at the office for a reporter and then oh shit because I love that it starts with a whistle yeah and uh, it, it's and it starts like something you might hear in an elevator in 1979 uh, it's really kind of laid back and loungy for a second until it gets to that sort of serious bit. And that's what Kolchak was. Yeah. He This was the he, show. He was that, a schlub. He yeah. didn't take anything that's... Like, he took everything seriously. Yeah, he cared. But we couldn't take him seriously because he was such a schlub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the X-Files if Mulder and Scully had no outer dignity. Like, that's what it boils down mm-hmm. to. So this is a show in which every episode begins with sad sack, grizzled, you know, borderline given up on live reporter encounters the supernatural yeah and you have to sell that you have to sell just how like fun that is but also how intense the horror is gonna get and Mm -hmm. sometimes it got really mega intense Mm -hmm. so yeah this is one of the great theme songs that we've ever discovered on our show Mm -hmm. uh and uh yeah this this was a pretty much a knock uh, a knockout this is a pretty straightforward (laughs) win yeah for kolchak the night stalker um, all right, so let's move on to our next uh, category. Our next category is category best, is best pilot episode. Now, a good pilot. We've got endangering the lives of hundreds of American pilots. It's um, <laughs> my Robert Loggia. Nice. Uh, a, a good pilot has to establish the characters, mm-hmm. establish the premise of the show, and 
promise great things moving forward. Yeah, you establish the premise and the promise because mm. you need to say to yourself, that's cool, but that's not a complete story. I want to see more of that every single week mm. for years. Yeah. Not every pilot is able to do that, and we've done a lot of shows. Every show begins with a pilot. Uh, oftentimes, the shows that we review never got past the pilot, for better or worse. And we have several shows here that mm. only lasted as far as the pilot. Um, but yeah, it's a tricky thing, and that very specific chemistry can make or break any series. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's happened a few times where a pilot is like kind of crap, and then they pick up immediately, like in the first episode. Sure. Um, Usually, trying to think of an example. Uh, yeah, usually in that case, either the talent is so good they decided to go for it anyway, thinking they'll figure it out as it goes along, yeah. or the promise was so exciting that fingers crossed they'll they'll make they, it. They'll, they'll, they'll nail yeah, it. Yeah, they retool it. Maybe they add a few characters here mm-hmm. and there. And but yeah, um, I f- feel like all of the ones on this list are pretty much like great out of the park, which is why mm-hmm. they were selected. And um, our our number five runner up mm-hmm. uh, was for. A detective show that uh, did all of those things. It established who the two main characters were, their relationship. Fantastic chemistry. Yeah, their great chemistry, how they were going to work moving forward, and the type of mysteries we had to look forward to. And that was a little show called Hmm. Probe. Now, Probe, which was co-created by Isaac Asimov, who then uh, promptly fucked right off <laughs> and let everyone... Like, after the pilot, apparently he didn't have a lot to do with it. Uh, but Probe was a story of a pleasantly mad scientist. Like, the smartest guy in the world who uh, gets... He knew really, he was the smartest guy in yeah, the world. He knows it. He's Lex Luthor. If Lex Luthor was the good guy. Oh. And he decides to put all of his scientific genius to work solving mysteries because it's fun. And it is about him and his uh, recently hired uh, executive assistant, uh-huh. uh, who is rather normal, mm-hmm. smart enough for who she is, but nowhere near like the smartest human being on the planet. Yeah. And how they create an unexpected connection. Not rom- not romance. They toy with it like in one episode, but it's not about that. It's just they are just they think differently, and we establish that connection, and then they solve a mystery involving artificial intelligence that has gone mad and is killing people, and like an, an additional like an additional murder mystery about someone who's like frozen more than like nature could have possibly allowed. Yeah, like and her, it's very her, confusing. Her, her the, core the, temperature yeah, the, is the, the victim's body temperature was lower than the temperature around her, so that that yeah. was not physically possible yeah um it's sort of it, it has this good x-files vibe in that like one is a believer and one is a skeptic mm-hmm. but also it has this really weird power dynamic and one is really kind of a misanthrope and one is very warm yeah and they balance each other very well like the misanthrope isn't just a dick to everybody he's he know he's learning how to soften so there's a lot of good character work all of that is established it's now they did have a long time to go with because it's a it's a two-hour pilot it's a two-hour pilot yeah Two-hour pilots typically do a little better just because they don't have to rush things. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I think... And moving, when we, having seen all of Probe, I think, yeah, it just got all of that right right away. And it just continued to roll with that. They never messed with that premise. They nailed it. Yeah. Uh, next up was another... Was This was a failed pilot, and it's a damn shame. <laughs> Winnie and I both, like, we kind of just threw ourselves into this pilot thinking, okay, that sounds kind of stupid. But then we both completely fell in love with a show mm. called... Tag Team. So Tag Team uh, was a buddy cop show about two wrestlers who become cops. One of them was played by Jesse the Body Ventura, future governor. 
And the other one was played by... Rowdy Roddy Piper. Yeah. <laughs> really, really just fun wrestling personalities. And uh, they're not great actors. Roddy Piper better than Jesse Ventura, but neither of them is, is a master thespian. Mm-hmm. I, I think Roddy Piper always kind of wanted to be on TV. Mm-hmm. He had a big personality, so it kind of makes sense to put him on in a TV show, especially one like this. Because he's kind of playing himself. Yeah, they're playing wrestlers who are like they're but, both really good guys, yeah, and then, they're they're established very clearly as underdogs, yeah. and they kind of fall into being a cop when they accidentally are in a store that's being robbed, and they save the day. What what the pilot has, other than an interesting story or even good writing, is just the overwhelming power of how friendly these guys are. Yeah. They're nice guys. You like them, you want them to succeed, just when you see them walk onto, onto camera. Yeah. It's like, I have an idea, we'll, we'll be police officers. And you're at home eating popcorn going, yeah, we'll be police officers. <laughs> That's pretty good. Well, what I like about it is that wrestling is a very over-the-top mm. kind of piece of entertainment and these characters are often larger than life but here in this particular show more so than some of the wrestling type movies that came out like the Hulk Hogan movies mm. <laughs> life beats down on these guys they are portrayed as underdogs mm. they are not successful wrestlers they're not glamorous wrestlers most well, people don't recognize them they also openly acknowledge that wrestling doesn't leave them a lot of other opportunities in the world yeah they, they have to really fight to maintain any kind of credibility yeah so that's and this show is about them constantly being underestimated because they are the type of people we'd love to see in a show like this. <laughs> so we want them to succeed. And the thing is, though, is that the criticisms other people lob at them, other cops, mm. criminals, whatever, they're not, like, unbelievably unreasonable. It's just like, you're wrestlers who became cops? Why did you do that? That's weird. <laughs> yeah. That's a weird transition you're making for yourselves. I have some good-natured ribbing for you. Like yeah, here, here, here was my one fear. And it, some it poorly didn't, natured ribbing. It didn't make it past the pilot. And this would have made a good maybe two or th- even three seasons of television. Mm-hmm. Or be my, one of those shows that weirdly lasts 200 episodes because no one notices it's, like, yeah. always at number 22 in the ratings. Well, my... my the unbelievability of that premise would creep in around year four. I mean, they can't be underdogs at that point if they've solved the, as many crimes as three seasons would allow them. They should be mayor. <laughs> By like season four, they should be like Mayor Hagar and like Fatal and like Final Fight, and they have to like clean up the town with their fists. <laughs> One's mayor, one's deputy mayor. Yeah! It's an episode of them fighting over who gets to be mayor and who gets to be deputy mayor. I'd watch that season. That sounds like a great season of television. All right, we got to move on. Uh, the next runner-up is another really amazing pilot Then we are incredibly disappointed that it didn't get picked up because this is probably the funniest single episode of anything I watched for this show ever. I think somebody wrote this with you in mind. I think so. It's very much... It's very me. Yeah, it's very yeah. me. It is, of course, The Elvira Show. El- Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, is one of the most important people to have ever been born. Yes. Uh, you know, there's you, know, you got Plato, you got Jesus Christ, you got Confucius. You got, they're you know, fine. They're, they're okay. Elvira is, is in that company. And yeah. Top eight, minimum. <laughs> and, yeah, she they've put her in movies they and they tried this tv sitcom with her and as far as i'm concerned it doesn't really matter if they're good or bad because you're getting to see elvira <laughs> luckily the elvira show was hilarious it 
it was really kind of self-aware and understood that most of its humor was, quote, dumb humor, uh-huh. uh, in that it was very pun-based, it was very double entendre-based. Mm-hmm. It was uh, a threes company kind of vibe. It's yeah, very but, sexy, but nothing actually sexy ever actually happens. But it, it was kind of a sideways view of that, because it's Elvira. She's a, a witch. Uh-huh. <laughs> she's a, this, like, supernatural creature. So it's, it's her, and she's living with her aunt, and then her niece shows up out of the blue, and her niece doesn't know she's a witch yet, and they have a talking black cat and Elvira is just trying to be like a fortune teller around town but there are cops who are busting down the doors of fake fortune tellers not knowing she's a real one <laughs> and it's it's a little bit like the setup or at least the vibe of the really wonderful cult movie Elvira Mistress of the Dark mm. which is just a delightful film and they translate that vibe they give it a bit more of a really fast paced sitcom you know Golden Girls at its best kind of vibe, just everyone running in and out of the same room, making wisecracks. But the wisecracks are great. Like, (laughs) consistently, like, every line of dialogue feels like it was workshopped by, like, the best Borscht Belt comedians, Mm. like, at the top of their game. Mm. So, yeah, this is what I want sitcoms to be. (laughs) <laughs> is the Elvira show and if we could please bring it back yeah, they, they really that cra- would be great they really cracked the whip on it and when, as we explained when we were doing this episode they, it was taken off the air because it was too raunchy yeah I think it was and made for CBS which is still doing Touched by an Angel yeah. and stuff and no, it was not their vibe yeah j- Fox could have snapped it right up Fox was really uh, traded in raunch and I mean that can we please just get beyond what was safe? That's what made the show great. <laughs> That's how great shows get made, is they weren't yeah, safe. They yeah. were weird choices. I mean, you'll be rolling your eyes just as much as you'll be laughing, but that's kind of the point. Yeah, they don't want knew you what to... she was doing. Yeah, they, yeah. You're supposed to be rolling your eyes. That's what puns are for. Oh. You're supposed to go, ah, but I love you for it. Give me more. <laughs> <laughs> Elvira, she hurt me so good. Whitney, take us down to our last runner-up. Our last runner-up uh, was... Um, based on a 1987 feature film, uh, this was mid-90s sci-fi at its best. Mid-90s sci-fi is kind of our Achilles heel. We love it we, so. We, we love it. That's kind of what we grew up watching. So when we came upon this show, it's like, oh, more, more of this. <laughs> oh, more of this. Good. And uh, it took a, a really satirical, kind of difficult to replicate uh, movie, which was they re- replicated the tone in its sequel. Not in the second sequel. Not in RoboCop 3. Not in RoboCop 3. But I think they were able to really capture the satirical tone of the movie while giving us only TV levels of violence. Mm -hmm. I mean, the violence is a big part of RoboCop. But RoboCop, the series, managed to make the TV version of RoboCop and do it well. Yeah, so this is something that they really struggle with Mm. with RoboCop because RoboCop has obvious kid appeal. Mm. He looks cool. You want to play with that action figure. They had an animated series about RoboCop. But the original movie was dark and cynical and Mm. horrifically violent and profane. So when RoboCop 3 came around, they decided to make it really kid-friendly, and they whiffed it. (laughs) RoboCop the series struck the right tone, and it struck the right tone off the bat. Now, there is like one of those like annoying kid characters who will have nothing to do with anything, like lurking around. Who's going to be off the show if they had gone to a second season? I guarantee you they would have gotten rid of her. But Mm. uh, take that out for a second. She really isn't that big a deal on the pilot. Mm. What we have here is a really excellent distillation of the kind of corporate satire, corporate spoof, Mm. uh, depressing character study. Robocop is a tragic figure, and the show gets that. Um, 
It's got humor. It's got action. But yeah, it all feels like an episode of The Flash if The Flash took place in a dystopian future. Yeah, yeah. That's a good premise. That's a good setup. It feels right. Even though it isn't ultra-violent or as, like, what's the word, acidic about American culture Mm. as as the first two movies were, it doesn't ever feel like it's not RoboCop. Yeah. That's yeah. so hard to do. Good for them. <laughs> and I know the pilot was written by, like, it was like a script that was going to be a Robocop sequel and didn't get picked up, but they didn't have to do it. They chose this one, and I think they were wise to do so. Yeah. And uh, they added a few new wrinkles that actually gave a lot of depth to the Robocop character, which would have been out of place in the movie, but if you have a series, you need this sort of you thing. You need some more. So he had a confidant, which I really appreciated. Uh, the confidant character would have been terrible in a film. Mm-hmm. But here it really worked because it gave. Um, mer- I get, they called him Murphy, uh, RoboCop, to somebody to bear his soul to. Mm-hmm. And it's a holographic projection mm. of a woman who was used as a mainframe computer. Yeah, like her, her brain is in the city works now. And uh, so they're both part human and part machine, so mm. they can relate to one another in a way that he couldn't with any other human character. And it, it's not contrived. It feels like he has a confessional, and I liked I liked that element of the show a lot. I like it, too. Uh, but our number one winner for best pilot episode, an episode that had everything. <laughs> great characters, great premise, great promise, production value, freewheeling. You never know where it's going to go next. I completely fell in love with Voyagers. Travel through time to help history along. Give it a push where it's needed. When the Omni's red, it means history's wrong. Our job is to get everything back on track. With an exclamation point. Yeah! Voyagers which, starring which the amazing a, John Eric Hexum. Which had a cameo in Halloween. It did! Wasn't that weird? The reboot of Halloween, or like the reboot of the sequel of Halloween, or whatever the hell it was. David Gordon Green's Halloween. (laughs) There's a scene in which someone on TV is watching Voyagers. Mm. That's a very specific reference. Someone who made that movie is a fan. Good for them. Uh Voyagers was cool. Voyagers was basically America's answer to Doctor Who. It's it's funny. A young boy, his parents are dead, his aunt and uncle don't like him. And then, not unlike Time Bandits, a hunky time traveler just flies into his bedroom, says, I'm lost on my way to something. I gotta go. And the kid grabs him, mm-hmm. and then they end up falling through time together, meeting famous people, and setting history right whenever it goes wrong. Yeah, it had a, a little uh, little widget that let him know that something was a little bit wrong yeah, a little about ding. history. It was like just a little red light blinking. Oh, something's wrong. Yeah. and uh, Pretty clear indicator. And what we got here in this pilot was... Again, there's a lot of really fun asides. They go to a bunch of different time periods in history. They end up with the Wright brothers. Um, And they establish a really wonderful rapport between the two leads where there's a dynamic that I don't feel like gets explored very often Mm -hmm. on television. And that's uh, younger and older brothers. Yeah. That kind of relationship, it's often used as backstory for when people reconnect later. But, like, when someone's a kid and the brother's, like, 20, 
Like the relationship you have is weird. And well, it's, I've, I've it's noticed helpful, in, encouraging, and loving, but it's also antagonistic because no. he wants to go off and date girls and the other kid wants to hang out and do whatever. And they capture that and it feels really very wonderful. I've noticed in a lot of recent drama, uh, when characters are siblings, it's usually as a way to illustrate shared trauma. Mm. Like they had a, a similar bad childhood, or, yeah. or, or similar, parent yeah, an abusive parent, something, something yeah. like that. They they were they had survived something together, and either it alienated them or it brought them together. But it that relationship is only ever included in new dramas to illustrate that trauma. And I feel like a, a, an actual affable, relatable, realistic brother relationship. Mm-hmm. It's just not something uh, filmmakers are either interested in exploring or know how to explore anymore. Yeah, I didn't have a close relationship with my significantly older brother because mm. um, he was out of the house when I was in like the fifth grade. Go but ahead. like something like Voyagers probably really would have connected to me if I'd seen it as a kid mm. because that's what I wanted my relationship with the older brother. To yeah. be like I wanted him to be like you know very you know supportive and cool and help me out of well, fights and, with and, bullies and, and they got then to, I'd help him with my nerdy stuff and it'd be great. They got to take turns being the one in charge because the younger brother character in Voyagers was the one who had all the smarts. Mm-hmm. And he actually had to bail out John Eric Hexum plenty. Mm-hmm. Whereas John Eric Hexum, the adult, sort of the, the dashing hero type, did have to dash to the rescue, even though it was a little bit thick. Yeah, he had to do all the physical stuff. Yeah. He had to do all the adult stuff. But, but, uh, brain and brawn. It was a yeah. good relationship. They had a lot to contribute mm-hmm. to each other. What a great show. Uh, I think we're going to be talking about it again before uh, <laughs> this awards episode is up. Yeah. But let's move on to the Wait. opposite of the pilot awards. Mm-hmm. This is the award for the biggest cliffhanger. Yeah. Now, the, by the very nature of our show, almost nothing we've ever reviewed has had a proper ending. Like an ending yeah, well, that's really final, because uh, everything gets canceled before its run is over. Uh, it's, it's, it happened with, uh, with Cop Rock, but uh, <laughs> the, yeah, it's rare that the showrunners will get enough word to close out their show. Mm-hmm. Like, they they're probably have already are, are shooting, or maybe have even already shot the last episode of the first season before they know they're canceled. So they try to leave you on a cliffhanger. Nothing will ever beat Alcatraz. Not yet. Anyway, I think, I think so. None of, none of the ones in this category are going to beat Alcatraz where the lead character died in the last episode. Yeah. And it turns (laughs) out supposed to be like a cliffhanger. Like something's going to happen after that. Yeah. And that was, that was huge. And yeah, it's a huge, huge, Mm. huge cop out. It really sucked. But, uh, yeah, we do have some really good cliffhangers this season. A bunch of them we didn't even like make it. Like we really talked up how much we loved the cliffhanger to Silver Surfer when we reviewed that. Mm-hmm. That didn't make our final list. Let's talk about some of the stuff that did. Mm-hmm. You were fighting for, and honestly, I was struggling to remember how it ended. Uh-huh. But you fought for this, so I'm going to let you give it a talk about. Okay. Our first runner-up is Will. Will, which was the uh, that really really rotten drama music musical slash modernish kind of dr- dramatic take on the life of the young William Shakespeare. And I think the season did close out pretty well. It it closed with the premiere of Richard III. Mm -hmm. And the whole premise of the show was that they they had to put it on. They had to put it on in order to show up a villainous real person in their lives. And... At the end of that, all of the characters we had met, you know, William Shakespeare's paramour and, you know, the, the... all of these things that were had, were being set up as sort of the next step in uh, William Shakespeare's life were all now being put into place, finally. We had struggled through all of the early part of his career, right? His paramour sailed away out into the sunset. Uh, Richard III was kind of a success. They had ostensibly defeated the villain. 
Okay, Growing Pains. Fine, you did all that early stuff. That's mm-hmm. the early life of the playwright. We're about to enter William Shakespeare's life as he's going to start writing as high tragedies, his best plays, you know, mm-hmm. your Hamlets and your Julius Caesars. And that, that kind of just dropped us there. It's like, oh, well, something great, great is about to happen. Yeah, I know. It's William Shakespeare's life. I know what's going to happen. What are you going to do? Oh, nothing. The show got canceled. Ah, how frustrating. So you were, more, was... you were more disappointed that we weren't going to get more Will than I was. Because <laughs> oh, well, I yeah. actually kind of hated this show. Like, there was a part of me that was amused by its badness, but ultimately, like, I was so ready to be done with this one. Mm. But um, you're a huge Shakespeare nerd, and I totally get it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it, it was a cliffhanger for me because I feel like even though the show sucked, I didn't like it. Mm. We were going to get to the good stuff, and I was curious to see how they were going to tackle that. All right, well, the next runner-up is another one that you fought for way harder. Harder than I did. Well, I'm not sure. I wouldn't say I fought for well, it. Well, you were, yeah. you were more into it than I was because okay. this is a show that everybody likes. Mm-hmm. I like it too, but some people love more than they love their offspring, <laughs> and it really didn't connect with me. So, although right. I appreciated that the ending is a cliffhanger and a pretty good one, mm. uh, I'm going to let you once again mm. take point on talking about the cliffhanger finale to Freaks and Geeks. Well, uh, I mean, I, I don't really have to recap Freaks and Geeks. It was really f- popular. A lot of people have seen it at this point. It was popular in its unpopularity. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, it ended with, I mean, the premise of the show, it started with the, the Linda Cardellini character recently lost her father. Her, she and her little brother were kind of struggling mm. through that. And... It was about how she was drifting from kind of a, f- a, a friendly goody-goody into sort of the world of the, quote, the freaks of the title. Mm. And it was about her struggle trying to be a good person and, you know, weather adolescence with this new crowd that she had come upon. And I feel like at the end of the show, although she was still sort of like drifting onto the outside, she had finally found her footing because she ran off to follow the Grateful Dead on tour. Right. I like that. And uh, I like that it was sort of like a good way to establish that she had become a new person. She was growing and had reached this new plateau. Mm -hmm. And that's a cliffhanger because the next season, what do you do with this new version of the character? See, the struggle is going to change in a way that seemed really intriguing to me. And uh, all of all of my uh, love of this cliffhanger is just about that character. Right, and then Linda Cardellini mm. is a fantastic actor, and she's mm. in a lot of shows that we reviewed this year, actually. She, she's uh, been in a lot of movies recently, too. Mm-hmm. I think she's having a bit of a, a renaissance. Yeah, so she, was in, she was in The Curse of La Llorona. Mm. She was in uh, Green Book as well. She's, she's doing okay. Um, and, of course, I'm a huge fan of hers. But for me, that choice that she made Mm. at the end of Freaks and Geeks felt less like a cliffhanger and more like a button. Okay. More just like, and in the end, after going through a year of being divided between different uh, types of life paths, she chose one. Okay. So for me, it just didn't feel like, oh, I can't wait to see what happens next. It felt like an ending. Uh, Well, that's fair. Yeah. That's fair, yeah. Yeah. Uh, My, uh, uh, the next runner-up was one, a cliffhanger that was so big and so good, it made a show I hated good. <laughs> okay. Uh, or at least better. Uh, is the cliffhanger uh, ending to Marvel's Inhumans? Well, the cliffhanger is a great pilot is the problem. Yeah, that's the, that's the <laughs> trouble. We have an entire season of this show. If you don't remember it, Marvel's Inhumans was the failingest thing Marvel Studios ever did. It was a 
It was about a race of superpowered people in a really rigid and kind of fucked up caste system living on the moon. Mm. And there is and a they have, a, they have a, a superpower box that gives you superpowers at your bar mitzvah. Yeah, and, and that's part of their culture. And, and if you don't have superpowers, you are enslaved in the mines. Mm. And if you do have superpowers, you get to live amongst royalty. And to be clear, mm. uh, the heroes are the people at the top of the caste system, yeah. not at the it's, bottom. It's, the it's ki- really the, weird. It's about the king and queen. Yeah. <laughs> and the people like enforcing this really oppressive system of government. So, so when the bad guy overthrows them, you're like, oh, good, good. Yeah. Good. Overthrow those bastards. Yeah. Turns out the bad guy is evil too. In, in addition to that. But, <laughs> but yeah. like, yeah. So the, po- so the series that preceded it was basically the, the Inhumans going fugitive on Earth. Some of the subplots were okay. Most of them were crap, which is boring and lame. Mm. But it ended with this entire civilization of Inhumans having to come to terms with the American government and immigrate to America, which, given the complicated politics involving immigration in this country... Mm. That could have been a really fantastic mm-hmm. series. I was it's so excited. Potent political to, fer- uh, parable yeah. through superhero. Trials. I was Why super not? excited about the possibility of where this could go. And that's the thing we don't get to see. Yeah. And yeah. boy, was that annoying because I was like, stoked for the first time in the last like five minutes. Like, ra- ra- <laughs> I don't care about your royal system or the fate of your city. Yeah. Once, once you've been humbled, which is what we wanted from frame one. What are you going to do? How are you going to to uh, assimilate into Earth society? Yeah, annoying. Nope that that's your pilot. That's how you start. That, well, of course that's that's alienation, but with superheroes. But you know, still cool. Still cool. I'm gonna see it. Um, okay, the next runner up and our last runner up is one we've actually already mentioned because mm-hmm. they did get a chance to put a button on the show. However, yeah. they didn't wrap anything up. Well, and this is why I didn't select this one, what you said about Freaks and Geeks. I feel like they did put a button on the show. Mm-hmm. So I feel like they did. Th- I, I feel, feel like, like they were they closed everything off well. So this one was my, I was pushing mm. for this one, yeah. but this is the series finale of Cop Rock. Mm. Now, here's how the series finale of Cop Rock went. It was a regular episode of Cop Rock. It was not the final episode of the season. It was like a mid-season, just cut off uh-huh. cliffhanger with a guy who... Uh, you know, shot a suspect in cold blood and been fighting to like get back on the force and mm-hmm. um, just really corrupt bastard and all these horrible things are going on. And then we cut to commercial and then at the last commercial break, Ronnie Cox and Vondi Curtis Hall mm-hmm. walk in out of character. Yeah, they're in their street clothes. Yeah, just, and they're, they're on themselves. The, they're on the set of the show and they're just talking about how damn, it's a shame we were canceled. Mm. Yeah, I only got the one song. No, you got two songs. I only had one song. And then they all sing a song about getting canceled. (laughs) Now, I'm going to throw it out there. That's Mm. a fun end to the show. It is, however, still a cliffhanger because none of the actual plot of the show got resolved. They just said, by the way, we're ending Cop Rock. Mm Mm-hmm. But if you actually got invested in all the characters, which you were supposed to do, it wasn't pure camp, but, um, then it's it's still like a massive, like, ah, oh, come on! I think it put a button on it, though, because of what we were saying about the theme song. It, it acknowledges the artificiality of the musical form. Mm-hmm. And we've already seen, we see the characters every week in that theme song out of character. So we're always a little bit aware of what's going on, so that they were able to do something self-aware at the very end. Mm-hmm. They were able to pull back and see the set and see all the cables and all of the cameras uh, was really kind of a really good fitting 
essentially rush job <laughs> to a final episode. It is a rush yeah. job. It's fun though, and I think it's a good ending that mm-hmm. resolves absolutely nothing other than Cop Rock is over. So mm-hmm. I insisted on putting it on the okay. list. But our number one is another one we both agreed on, and it promised a great second season <laughs> to a great show. One of our favorite discoveries yeah. we've ever had yeah, on Cancel yeah. Too Soon. Mm-hmm. It is Blood Drive. <laughs> In the distant future of 1999, a global fuel shortage has ravaged civilization. Nice ride. But instead of going green... Have you seen the engine? We went red. The fuck? These cars run on human blood? Have you seen gas prices lately? Yeah, Blood Drive was was such a delight. Like, it, it, it took me a little while to get on its wavelength. But once I was there, I was there. And, uh... Yeah, the, the whole premise is it was super ultra-violent, completely ridiculous, a post-apocalyptic show, but the gist was every single episode was paying homage to a different subgenre of Grindhouse. Right. And it was it did have a little bit of that obnoxious, like, neo-Grindhouse where we're going to be really shocking just kind of for the sake of it, but I think it shook that off pretty quick and found its own identity pretty quick. And I think by, so. I think by I think by four or five episodes yeah. in it it is blood drive and not not something else. Yeah, yeah. and not just trying to mm-hmm. pay homage to other things all the time. But yeah, the premise is it's a cross-country road race, uh, but all of the cars run on human blood, so the protagonists, all the different people in every different car, has to keep constantly killing people in order mm. to keep their car going. And every single episode, they stop off in Cannibal Diner Town, <laughs> or like a weird post-apocalyptic city where everyone's like... Culture has emerged only from like business meeting doublespeak. <laughs> there's a there's a plague of sex zombies. Yeah, the sex zombie plague is probably my favorite episode. That's a good episode of television, right there. You know what you're getting there. But yeah, at the very end, um, there was this sort of uh, moral fall close to the end of the show of the main character, this uh, hunky guy who was nicknamed Barbie. Uh, um, I think it was, wasn't it Kendall? It was Barbie. They, they called he, him, they called they, him, he looks right. like a Kendall, but they called him Barbie. That's right. Okay. And, uh, yeah, he was supposed to be sort of the moral center. Uh, the, the two lead characters, one was really kind of, uh, dark and murderous and the, and the other main character was a cop. And near the end of the show, he started murdering people just kind of indiscriminately. It's like, this is it. I've been exposed to too much violence at this point. Mm-hmm. He was pushed too I, far. I, yeah, he became I'm, everything I'm he king. hated. Everything's been, uh, you know, people are being held hostage. This is the most horrible thing. And he just goes nuts and starts murdering people, and he becomes, like, the special. And <laughs> and he becomes the murder special, and he becomes really dark, and now it becomes about sort of trying to re- find any kind of redemption left in this world, now that everything has fallen. All the characters are scattered, and the last shot is that guy, naked on a beach, landing on Blood Island. <laughs> right. Now, here's the deal. It looks like he might have actually destroyed the evil corporation and stopping everything, mm. but he's not. He's stuck on an island... That is basically like Escape from New York Island for the criminally insane, which I guess makes it Escape from L.A. And the promise is we're going to get all the island-based grindhouse shows. We're going to get monsters. We're going to get prisons. We're going to get mad scientists. There's so much more we could do with Blood Drive. Boy, am I bummed we didn't get more of it. What a damn shame. Wow, what a good show. 
All right, let's move on. Our next category is the Lee Van Cleef Award. <laughs> the Lee Van Cleef Award, named oh. after the great Lee Van Cleef, who starred in films like For a Few Dollars More and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, mm. and who later in his career played ninjas in a show, The Master, aka mm. Master Ninja. And it's just kind of sad, where like you had a big career, and now the best you can do is crap TV. And mm. since we watch a lot of crap TV, we run into a lot of people. Who yeah, end up like in sort of, a, of a, it's sort of embarrassing a down, roles. A downswing of, of their career. Right. Now, there was no shortage of those this year as usual, but mm. let's just get going with our five. So our first runner-up is the great Lucy Lawless, mm. star of Xena Warrior Princess, who in the early 2000s apparently couldn't do better than mm. playing the like eighth lead on the CW Tarzan. I, I feel like she had nothing better to do that week. And it, it's it's kind of it's kind of painful to think that this might have been like a big break for her, mm-hmm. like a big show. That yeah, would, like, like that she, she could have gotten stuck doing this really kind of boring, terrible role because mm-hmm. she plays Tarzan's aunt. Well, and, there's and no twist. On, she's on, just her. Aunt. He's just on, his aunt. And the whole yeah, the whole premise is she's hiding Tarzan in the city, and people are after Tarzan, and that's her role. She just has to hide Tarzan. Uh, everybody reacts to Tarzan. That's one of the bad things about the show is t- Tarzan is kind of this non-entity, and all the stories are people saying, "Where's Tarzan?" Yeah, it's, it's the where, yeah, where's Poochie? Uh, so we're talking about Tarzan more than we're doing anything with Tarzan, and then he doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And poor Lucy Lawless is just one of those people who talks about Tarzan. And like Mitch Pileggi from the X Files was a regular on this show as well, but at least yeah. he had a character. Right. He was the bad guy. He got to do bad guy mm-hmm. things. Lucy Lawless, every single scene she's in, you're like. Why are you here? There must be. I kept thinking they were going to do a twist and she was going to be the real bad guy. No, yeah, no, she's <laughs> just a thankless role. Yeah. Uh, even that role isn't nearly as thankless as Morgan Fairchild in Star Command. Uh, who I think she was lost here. Like they, she was under contract or something, or like she, <laughs> she, she owed the director she, a yeah, favor. She smashed the producer's car, you know, and, and had to pay something back. <laughs> I just like to. Th- I have in my head an image of Morgan Fairchild wailing on a car with a golf club, and it pleases me. <laughs> so, Morgan Fairchild, <laughs> uh, popular TV star, considered for many years one of the most beautiful people on the planet, ended up on a TV show called Star Command, which was basically. Star Trek, hmm. but it all the teenagers who were like novices had to take over the bridge. And yeah. there were a couple of people who were like looked like they were gonna be the old guard big stars of the show, and then they die immediately. Hmm. Morgan Fairchild, yeah, it looks like she doesn't know where she is. Yeah. Like she doesn't know why she's wearing this particular outfit. Hmm. She's just there because she's Morgan Fairchild and like Lucy Laws, and she was available. Right. Or she was forced to be there against her will. Mm. Now, I would never call Morgan Fairchild one of the greatest actors who ever lived. (laughs) I'm not. But a lot of actors, when they do this kind of cameo, especially when they don't have necessarily the most dignified career, like ever, they're not Laurence Olivier, Mm. um, they know it's all in good fun. I never got that sense from Morgan Fairchild. She 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 was was really really, really playing it. yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, and it's not written for her strengths. It's just not. Yeah, she a good like I said, she, she seemed she seemed pretty lost. Like she couldn't really get a I think she didn't quite understand the premise of the show. It's like a science fiction <laughs> thing. It's like science fiction, like so like Space nineteen ninety nine, I never watched that, but you know she she was presenting herself like an like an airline flight attendant. 
but she was supposed to be like this ball busting admiral. No. It's like that. No, poor Morgan Fairchild. No. Like she was just out of her depth. Um, but an, an actor who has a great deal of uh, strength and cachet has an Academy mm. Award, uh, respected, mm. wonderful titan of acting, Louise Fletcher. Yeah. Uh, she found herself on a little show called VR5. See, I don't think she was necessarily slumming it in VR5. No, I don't think it's about slumming it. I think it's about being wasted. Okay. And that's where we disagreed on this one, because you didn't nominate her. And I think for me, when you see VR5, which is a show about a woman who finds out that she has the power through virtual reality to enter people's brains. Yeah. Kind of lame, but what are you going to do? Um when you find out her mom is played by Louise Fletcher, you get pretty excited. Like, ooh, Louise Fletcher. What a great actor. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Really incredible. Good. This will be, we will do well here. What, who, what's she playing? Catatonic, the whole series. Oh. Oh. She'll have flashbacks. Oh. But it's the same flashback over and over again from different perspectives. Oh. She'll be in a dream once. Oh. It will be lame. Oh. I, I can't feel too bad for Louise Fletcher, though, because you could tell she didn't need to work very hard. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. I'll give you yeah, that. I'll like, give you it's that. like, are you free this Tuesday? Sure. Can you shoot four episodes? Yeah. Could, how long is it going to take? Uh, just a couple hours. <laughs> Do I get lunch? Uh, yes, Louise Fletcher. You get lunch. Okay. Do I get chili? Yeah, you get chili. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Louise Fletcher's playing hardball. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna get that chili. Well, dude, if you get me chili, how much are you gonna pay me? It doesn't matter, I get chili. <laughs> I'm gonna, I want to find out Louise Fletcher has like a chili cookbook. <laughs> you know what? I would buy the hell out of Louise Fletcher's is... chili cookbook. <laughs> it's a bestseller. All right, uh, our our first our big runner-up, uh-huh. not the winner, but our other runner-up in the Lee Van Cleef Award. Mm. You nominated this person, and I didn't see it until you nominated them, and I was like, mm. oh, yeah, it has to be at least number two. So tell <laughs> us about uh-huh. Heather Graham and Emily's Reasons Why Not. Well, this is more to do with the fate of the show, but Heather Graham is an incredibly talented actress. Yes. Uh, she, uh, from, from Boogie Nights to today, like, I think Boogie Nights was sort of the thing everybody noticed her for, mm, even she, she was doing acting before, before yeah. this. Um, but yeah, she has a wonderful range. She can play very intense roles and she kind of landed this plum gig. She gets to be the star of a sitcom. Good money, especially if it's a hit. And she's asked to play the most horrendous, vapid, shallow character. And in a show that gives her no credit, nothing to do, and is just callow in its setup that, yeah, it's a waste of her talent. Now, this is one of the more notorious failed shows in mm. recent memory because I think it lasted like one episode. It, it, and only, it was gone. only one episode aired. No, they filmed a bunch, so they were able to release it on DVD, and there's mm. like seven episodes on there or something. Seven or eight, something like that. I forgot we watched this. <laughs> it's Yeah, it's that kind of thing. We, we even watched it together, yeah. commenting on it, and yeah. we still forgot. It's so forget. I There's one episode about naps. Oh, wait, no, that was the Dharma. That was uh, uh, Imaginary Mary. Yeah, yeah, I don't even remember a single episode of this show. There was there was the one guy who couldn't stop partying. I remember that episode. Oh, she like met him on a cruise. Yeah, she took like the cruise guy, and they home. put sand in her apartment. Yeah, uh, and they just wanted to keep the party going and drink all the time, and uh, she couldn't do that because uh, she was a professional. Uh, she made lists. 
you you have Heather Graham. No, no, no. You and, have Heather and Graham. And you just shoved her down the garbage disposal. Heather Graham is more than capable of headlining a great television mm-hmm. series. Um, and yeah, this mm-hmm. might have seemed like a show that was going to save her career, and instead it actually hurt her because it became a legendary flop. Mm-hmm. It's not her fault. The material is not there. Yeah, it's not even the worst thing ever. It's just generic sitcom. It's mm. the boilerplate on which you're supposed to add other stuff to make it good, and they never added the other stuff. <laughs> it's water soup. <laughs> That's a great way to describe it. Yeah, it's just woo. Uh. But even that, even that, wasn't as depressing as Rodney Dangerfield in Where's Rodney. Monday, it's Rodney Dangerfield in an amazing comedy special. There was one girl. She told me, come on over. There's nobody home. I went over. There was nobody home. Rodney's back to school. I knew I should have graduated. Helping some hilarious high schoolers get some respect. Oh, you kid, I got a kidney-shaped pool with a stone in it. It's another summer comedy hit. Where's Rodney? Monday at 8 on NBC. Look, Rodney Dangerfield is... he He comes from the generation who always... Want who always, not always wanted to work. Everybody always wants to work, mm-hmm. but uh, of a certain type of performer that would take any gig and throw themselves in, no matter what it was. Yeah, they they weren't really concerned necessarily with their brand. Is my point. Well, they were their brand. They were already established. Well, and the, then they get the work after. Ronnie's an interesting case, though, because Ronnie mm-hmm. Dangerfield. Uh, worked for many, many years as a relatively unsuccessful comedian, and it wasn't until he was like middle aged or later that mm. he even found his shtick. Yeah, and yeah. then his shtick got really specific. He was the "I don't get no respect" guy, mm-hmm. and only then did he become a success because he found that yeah. niche. And the the thing is, he has this niche. It's that he came to prominence before the nineteen eighties. But the 1980s were this big time for the comedy boom. Stand up, mm-hmm. like stand up comedy clubs, opened everywhere. Stand up comedians were suddenly a known presence in the pop culture world. Mm-hmm. And uh, the big goal of a lot of these people were to get sitcoms. Yeah, they became so big and so ubiquitous. TV studios to sat up and took notice and started moving them onto television. Yeah, and that became the goal for a lot of people. We got to get you on TV. So every single comedian, no matter how good or bad or successful they were, were probably approached about a sitcom project at some point. Yeah. And so it only it was only going to be a matter of time before they got to Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney Dangerfield, we want you to be in a, in a sitcom. Have you heard my shtick? It's not really story-oriented. <laughs> like, we can't dramatize the things in my jokes. It's sick. It'd just be sad. Yeah. Everyone would want to, like, just yeah. tie a noose around their yeah. neck at yeah. the end of the night. <laughs> The other night, my wife greeted me at the door wearing a sexy negligee. The problem was she was coming home. Uh, <laughs> I get it. Yeah, it's, it's that's pretty good. Yeah, you can't dramatize that. It's sad if you see yeah. that just dramatized. It's just it's just it's a really depressing mm-hmm. Charlie Kaufman esque kind of thing, and which is kind of appropriate that they came up with a Charlie Kaufman esque premise, which yeah, is about co- a little this kid. completely surreal mag- magical realism sort of premise. And it's not even like Rodney Dangerfield in this kid's head as like his imaginary friend. Yeah, it's not his conscience. It's actual Rodney Dangerfield. At one point, we cut to him fencing, which is inherently funny in and of uh. itself. And then he teleports away, and it looks like he's like, no one told him how to act it. Like, uh, what's going on? This is weird. Yeah. What's going on? This is so weird. Like, they didn't show him what the effect was going to look like. Yeah. <laughs> so he's just, just throwing so, it yeah. out there. So what, what happens now? How do I get back? You, you just vanish. What, I just vanish? Yeah, you just, you fade away. Well, what do I do? Do I just stand there? No, just say something like you're fading away. Okay. Oh, no, I'm fading away. <laughs> I, was that good? Yeah, fine. We'll, we'll, we'll work it. But the real weird thing is he's playing like the fourth lead in his own show. 
Yeah, it's about it's, a, it's about the kid and his drama and his friends and, and his, his parents, his family and his big sister. Yeah. And, and, Rodney Dangerfield's only in this thing for like four scenes. I notice he's only ever has. I mean, this is the premise of the show. He only has ever scenes like with the boy. Yeah, I don't think he can communicate mm. with anybody else. And he's only ever in like one of the sets, and there's nobody else there. So you can get the kid. He signed on to to do whatever. So he's scheduled to shoot. Roddy Dangerfield has two hours a week. <laughs> kind of like Louise Fletcher and her chili acting. There you go. <laughs> we, we need to get a t-shirt with a, like, a mock-up of the Louise Fletcher chili cookbook. Holding up a yeah. chili bowl, like all hey. happy. And- <laughs> okay, our next category is from, oh, that's sad about that past star, mm. to best future star. Like, like they're, uh, we see them before they were big. Yeah, which happens a lot, because a lot of people get their first breaks on television. They always need people to come in for mm. a day, or a week, or a storyline. And there are hardworking actors who want to make it big, and lo, some of them did. Indeed. And, and in these cases, they all established how good they were early on, or at least established their personality really early Like, we on. could tell from their early mm. stuff that here's why they became famous. Mm. And in the first runner-up, is someone who I forgot wasn't famous once. <laughs> he he's he has the the kind of face, especially now after A Star Is Born. He's just sort of a, a well entrenched Hollywood presence. But Bradley Cooper uh, had to be a young actor at some point, mm-hmm. and he played uh, Anthony Bourdain ish in <laughs> Kitchen Confidential. And uh, I think. He came out of the gate as Bradley Cooper. The, right. There was no two ways about his talent or about his personality. He had that charm. He had that affability. He had that talent. You could right carry away. a show right yeah. away. And what's weird for me is that the reason why it didn't occur to me to nominate him is because mm-hmm. he came off of a small but memorable supporting role on Alias. So for me, okay. he was already kind of a star. But this is. But you're right. This I, I hadn't seen Alias. But most this was people. The, he he opened this show with almost no clout, and that was a, a big deal. Absolutely, and he nailed it. He's he is the character right from the start. I don't think the show really works. I think it's one of those mm. shows where everyone's too much of a jerk and they think that's yeah. funnier than it really is. But he can carry an entire show already at that point early in his mm. career. And he's good. And it's a good ensemble cast, too. He's holding his own against everyone from Frank Langella mm. to and John, John Cho. Yeah, it's yeah. a good group. Mm. Um, next up is someone who has a blink and you will miss it. <laughs> Cameo. But what a treat mm. it was. Mm. In the middle of Cop Rock... To see a very young Cheryl Crow. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, this is more like, okay, I'm a young singer. I'm writing songs. I'm this soulful, talented person. But I gotta pay the bills. So I'll show up on this set and be in an episode of Cop Rock. Might go somewhere. Turns out it didn't. Yep. It's a silly premise. People make fun of the show. I like the show. I think it's very good. Well, the thing is with but something like Cop when, Rock... When that person goes on to become an award-winning rock star a really great rock star too i love cheryl crow but yeah there's this weird thing where cop rock could have led somewhere because they need singers every week they need backup Mm -hmm. dancers every week and cheryl crow played a cop Mm -hmm. in a cop show so theoretically they use her enough she could like get elevated to bigger status this actually could have really led somewhere for Cheryl Crow. As, as, an, as an actress. Yeah, yeah, it turns out she didn't need it. Yeah. <laughs> but it because could have. Because she's Cheryl freaking Crow. And the opening scene, and the scene in which we see her is there is someone on, I think it's UCLA, 
because the show takes place in Los Angeles. Someone at UCLA or USC is sexually assaulting the students, mm-hmm. and all of the female police officers are going undercover as college students to lure the asshole out, and they have a big song about catching this bad guy, <laughs> and then there's Cheryl Crow right mm-hmm. in the middle of it. She's Stealing there, the whole thing. There she's she good. is, because she's Cheryl Crow. Yeah. Um, the next one is one that you selected, and like... Uh, just like Bradley Cooper, I was having trouble remembering, like, the world without her. <laughs> <laughs> because she's so damn great. Uh, and it is, of course, Margot Robbie in Pan Am. Mm. Margot Robbie, now an Academy Award nominee. She stars in blockbuster movies. She's one of the more respected and li- and well-liked actors of her young generation. And her first big, big break was on this failed soap opera-esque show about uh, uh, the flight attendants working for Pan Am in the 1960s. Yeah. And uh, this was, uh, I think, two years before The Wolf of Wall Street. A couple years, yeah. Yeah, It was a couple years before The Wolf of Wall Street, which was sort of what established her in movies. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, she was already displaying her talent in in this show. Um, I think... The character didn't necessarily do her career any service. It was a little too specific. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I saw her in other things. It's it's one of those things where you have to see her in other things to really see her range. Yeah, because her character is she's uh, she was going to get married. She was going to live this perfect idyllic housewife mm-hmm. life, and then Decided she she didn't want that at the last minute. Literally last minute, runs away from her wedding with her sister, who was working for Pan Am. Margot Robbie works for Pan Am. And a lot of the show is shown from her perspective as the world opens up in front of her and she gets to be well-traveled mm-hmm. and meet all kinds of interesting people and learns that the world is darker or more interesting or whatever. And there's a kind of awkward episode where she learns that racism is a thing. Mm-hmm. But still, the show, even though it's ensemble, a lot of it is on her shoulders. And she's a younger actor. She's not as experienced. And she carries it. It's really, really great. But you're absolutely right. We didn't see how great she could be mm-hmm. until she got to films. Yeah. All right. Uh, the next runner-up, the last runner-up, mm. is uh, another Whitney Seibold special. Well, I, I actually wanted to nominate, if I, if I was allowed to, the entire cast of The Edge. Maybe not the entire cast, mm-hmm. but between Jennifer Aniston, uh, Wayne Knight, Tom, and Tom Kenny, these are all comedians who went on to do bigger, huger things almost mm. immediately after The Edge. Now, the reason why... Sadly, Julie Brown, the mastermind, didn't was, get to bigger... Like, she kept on doing things about this level. Well, no, because she was already and she, famous. Yeah. Wayne Knight had already been in Jurassic Park. I didn't vote nominate Wayne Knight. Uh, I didn't nominate uh, Tom Kenny. Maybe I should have nominated Tom Kenny, but... Uh, the, but he's you nominated, Bob now. You, you know? nominated the whole cast. Yeah. I nominated just Jennifer Aniston. Okay. Now, Jennifer, this was pre-Friends Jennifer Aniston. And this is... People didn't know her. She'd done Leprechaun but that's it. And this is Jennifer Aniston, who had become known as a relatively straightforward romantic comedy lead. She eventually would go on to do some really good serious acting roles. Mm. Um, A lot of really good indie dramas she was took part in. I have a lot of respect for her as an actor. This is her trying to be a comedian, like a Lucille Ball broad comedian, Mm. and doing it. She's really good. (laughs) She's really hilarious, yeah. She throws herself Mm. into every bit. Well, it's a a pretty dark show, so that she was able to do that proves that she has a kind of a dark sense of humor. Yeah, she plays Shannon Doherty as the Terminator, which is a weird gag, but she does it. My favorite bit with Jennifer Aniston was uh, 
they they assembled the entire cast and said, we're going to play a game called What's in the Edges Bowling Ball Bags. And they unzipped their bowling ball bags and each one had a severed human head. It's like, oh, a human head, of course. What do you have? Well, I know it's uncreative, but a bloody severed human head. And they got to Jennifer Aniston at the end of the line. What do you have? I have a bowling ball. (laughs) What? It's got some blood on it. (laughs) Like everybody just sort of rejected her and walked away. My favorite Jennifer Aniston bit was uh, they did the exorcist, but where Father Karras was the three stooges. Yeah. (laughs) And she was Regan and... She's hilarious in that bit. I don't know how you keep a straight face mm. with Wayne Knight playing Curly. <laughs> but man, that's a really funny bit. So yeah, it's a really, really good... And it's cool because unlike Margot Robbie, who would go on to bigger and better things, unlike Sheryl Crow, who would go on to bigger and better things, mm. this is... Jennifer Aniston would go on to bigger and better things that are entirely different from this. It's true. She never got to play this wacky again that I that I know of. I, I mean, I guess, like, if you look at something like We're the Miller or something a little broader... But that's but broad, that's, but that's, that's yeah. not wacky. That's true. This is wacky, and she was good at wacky. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so this was kind of a revelation for me, so I had mm. to nominate her specifically. All right. Uh, however, our number one... And this was a no-brainer. This was a no-brainer, and not only is it a no-brainer, it's a tie between like a dozen people. <laughs> uh, it's it's pretty much the cast of Freaks and Geeks. Okay, so let's run down some of the people mm. who are on Freaks and Geeks. This is only some of them mm. who weren't anybody yet. Seth Rogen, mm. Linda Cardellini, Jason Siegel, Martin Starr, Busy Phillips, Lizzie Kaplan, Ben Foster, Shia LaBeouf, Sam Levine, who, who we had on the show. He's a very nice guy. but Who was sweet enough to come on this show. Yeah, Twice, nice in fact. Very nice yeah. dude. But no one knew who those people were, and they were all on the same show. <laughs> Whether you love Freaks and Geeks or, mm. like me, merely like it. Uh-huh. That's a one hell of a cast. Your casting director was the shit. <laughs> Your casting director should have gotten a special Oscar. I know you're a TV show. <laughs> like, oh my god. Uh-huh. And it's and all of them, every single character on that show, uh-huh. had good stuff. Everyone had subplots yeah. and real emotional s- arcs and beats and good jokes and man, it was really well rounded. I-, I will say this: Jason Siegel plays a loser burnout so effectively that I kind of disliked his character, yeah. and as a result, kind of disliked him for a little bit yeah. because I thought he was that guy. Yeah. No, it turns out he's just a talented actor. <laughs> yeah. And we left out like James Franco. Like we're just yeah, a ton yeah. of people who were just. Mm. Yeah, really richly characterized ensemble cast. Mm. Um, Busy Phillips, I think, steals a lot of the show for me. I think she's just delightful. But she she comes across as like really abrasive at first, but then we get to know why she's abrasive. So, yeah. The character doesn't change. Our understanding of her changes and we start seeing the nuances that we missed before. Mm. That's great. Mm. That's great stuff. So, yeah, Freaks and Geeks. It couldn't have been anything else. Yeah. No matter how hard we tried. All right, now next up, best guest star. Yay! Now this is this uh, is different from the Lee Van Cleef Award. Yeah, the Lee Van Cleef Award is a little sad, mm. and it could be a protagonist, it could be a guest spot, but either way, mm. best guest star is someone who comes on for one episode or only a couple of episodes and really blows us away. Sometimes more so than the rest of the cast. <laughs> Uh, and let's get started right away mm. with one of the great actors of her generation. No, you know what? The world. 
the world has ever produced. <laughs> Kathy Ireland. <laughs> so, in fam- the fam- Edge. Famous model and s- s- swimsuit cover model, uh, Kathy uh, Ireland. Whose acting career isn't particularly mm. illustrious. You may remember her from, oh, what was that MST3K movie she was in? Was Alien from L.A. Alien from L.A., mm. where she uh, goes into an underground world where she's the alien mm. because she's from L.A. And, and she's squeaky and obnoxious and you want to smack her. Well, I don't know about <laughs> that, but she's really bad in that movie. Mm. And I've seen her in other things, too. She's not good. However, a good show or a good movie knows how to turn her particular brand of not acting into acting. Find find a character that she can do. And and what version of Kathy Ireland are we getting in The Edge? Uh, We're getting Kathy Ireland... The Kathy Ireland character, mm. where they actually are so like hung oh. up on the fact that they have a guest star oh. that they just keep freaking out that she's Kathy Ireland. Mm. And that's funny. That's funny because the cast is funny. You can tell they do kind of resent having to have a guest star because they never right. did before. Um, and Kathy Ireland gets to be just a little stuck up. No, she isn't supposed to be here. No, she's cooler than everybody else. Mm. And they play that dynamic well. She's funny in this. There's a really unfunny sketch in this about giving her sleeping pills or something that's really gross. But it, it's let's a, not it's talk a, it's about a, that. It's a dark, violent show. The joke doesn't play as well as it used to. I don't think it ever played that well, but okay. Um, but let's talk about another cameo here. Another. Com- this, is, this was a completely unexpected cameo. And I'm going to set the stage here in a little show called Voyagers. Now, once again, it's about two guys. They're going... In so, forward time, time traveling brothers, yep. essentially. They're going forward and backward through time, and they keep finding themselves in one crazy situation after another. And oftentimes, in the middle of an episode, they would have one mini adventure. Mm. Just as like a pit stop. Yeah. In the middle of Voyagers, they land on an airplane that's about to crash, and they have to land the plane. Classic no, TV sketch. N- nothing to do with the main plot of the story. No, nope, yeah, not history. And it doesn't seem like it, no one knows this plane crash. It's not important. And they land the plane, and as they're walking off the plane, the kid says to John Eric Hexham, what does this have to do with history? I'm not familiar with why this is important. And Dr. Hexman says, look, everything is important. Everything mm. is important to history. Someone on this plane could be a really big deal someday. You never know. And as they leave the frame, <laughs> it turns out who's on the plane but President Jimmy Carter. <laughs> himself. What a weird get for Voyagers. I know, but you know what? Voyagers was a was billed as an educational series. Yeah. It was basically telling people like history is yeah. neat. Every episode ended with if you want to learn more about the French mm. Revolution, consult your local library. So Jimmy Carter, that's kind of his brand. He's like one of the most nice and helpful presidents we've ever mm. had. So it kind of fits, but it's such a bug your eyes out weird moment and he's not on screen very long so if like you went to get a drink from the fridge thinking the scene was over you'd never know he was in the show that's weird but what a what a great trick jimmy carter why not all right our next runner up it's like when nixon was on laughing oh god weird it's a great cameo all right fine uh next runner up whitney you take this one because this was your suggestion i forgot about this show how could you forget about this show? This is one of my favorite shows. I know. Um, I, I compared this show uh, favorably to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I feel like this is the, what Buffy the Vampire Slayer could have been I, if it had just the right, adve- right ambitions. Uh-huh. It would have been canceled immediately. Just like this one was. Uh, 
No, uh, this was uh, Paul Bartel and Mary Warnoff uh, had a cameo in Bone Chillers, and Bone Chillers is delightfully weird high schoolers in a haunted high school TV, like, mm. kid-friendly The sitcom. cafeteria is gross and full mm. of monsters. Everything yeah. is haunted. Everything looks like a haunted house, like a really fake-looking haunted house set. And It's Nickelodeon does Hogwarts without Harry Potter. More or less. Yeah. Uh, but it had a weird sort of edge because it did have this weird sort of like cult movie imprimatur lurking underneath. Mm-hmm. And the they people got, who made the show were, were weird culty people. Yeah, like Richard Elfman directed a couple episodes. And uh, when Paul Bartel, Paul Bartel and Mary Warnoff show up, you know where you are. Mm-hmm. This is This is, oh, wait, we're in Rock and Roll High School. We're in Eating Raul. We're in these, like, outer edges of... The TV experience. Paul Bartel and Mary mm. Warrenoff. Uh, Paul Bartel is sadly no longer with us. Mm. Mary Warrenoff is, but she doesn't work very much anymore. Mm. Last time I saw her in anything big was House of the Devil, which okay. is great. But there was this time yeah, period yeah, where yeah. they worked together so often, mm. in the 70s and in the 80s in particular, where every time you saw them, you knew you were watching a certain kind of y- film. You were in for a treat. It was going to be culty, and it was going to be funny, and mm. it was going to be broad. And really, and you were really gonna, strange. Yeah. You were going to love it. <laughs> so as soon as they show up in Bone Chillers, you're just like, oh, this is the good episode. Yeah, this, this, <laughs> I know where I am with this show now. So when they showed up, it's like, yes. Yeah, a kid's show knows to cast those two. I'm with good people. And it was a fun episode because it was a cannibalism episode. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's about fattening a kid up to eat him so that this whole family could live forever. <laughs> so it's really kind of twisted for a Nic- for like a little kid's show. Yeah, but, Saturday morning program. Yeah, but it, yeah, this, this was definitely a highlight for me. I, I'll give you that. Uh, the next runner-up is someone who pops in mm. at the last couple episodes mm. of Pan Am and has, in just a few episodes, a surprising, rich, emotional... Mm meaningful storyline that really grabbed me. Mm-hmm. It's Ashley Green in okay. Pan Am. Yeah. Now, Ashley Green uh, comes in I was in surprised, as, surprised to see this. But no, yeah. she, she, I, I really had to push for her, like, really hard, mm-hmm. because I think she really nailed it, because Pan Am is a show that tries, sometimes struggles, mm-hmm. but tries to show as many different experiences in the time period as it can. We meet one of the pilots. He is, starts off as a sexist pig, and he gradually realizes the error of his ways and mm-hmm. starts maybe a romance with Margot Robbie that mm-hmm. almost kicks in but doesn't quite because he runs into someone he used to know as a kid. Mm-hmm. They hated each other, but now they hit it off, and he's so deeply in love with her he wants to marry her right away. She's played by Ashley Green. Mm-hmm. What he doesn't realize is that she's gay, and what she's really looking for is a beard. Mm-hmm. Now, she's willing to go through the motions of this because this is the time period and she's making this really difficult decision that this is how she wants to live her life. It's, it's one of her only options, really. Yeah. She's, she lives in high society. She can't, like, ostracize herself from that, from her family. At least that's not how she sees it. And so she ends up coming on to Christina Ricci's character. Christina Ricci can't keep a secret for her life. Mm. And she ends up having to have this really difficult conversation with him where he just says... You want to date Margot Robbie? You can. Just marry me. Mm. It's fine. She has thought it all out. Mm. And it is such a reasonable portrayal of a character who really could have been portrayed 
so crappily. There's so many terrible ways you could have taken this entire subplot. And Ashley Green brings a lot of dignity and grace okay. to, I think, a really difficult character. And I really just... She turned the series around a bit for me. Right. And I like that series quite a bit. But I thought those last several episodes, they really found their groove. And I thought she was a big part of that. I mean, it, it wasn't Ashley Green who turned it around for me. It was a different supporting actor. And we'll, we'll get to them in a, in a moment. Actually, we will, But yeah. uh, I... I, I Sadly, her storyline, her story was interesting, but I feel like Ashley Green, like she didn't blow it, but she didn't bring oh. anything necessarily special to that. Oh, I, I thought think. she did. Think, okay, yeah, well, yeah. difference yeah. of opinion here. Yeah. We're gonna. Well, well, I, I was I was unimpressed with with Ashley. All right, Green. No, I, our, and, I, and I like Ashley Green. I think she's great. But yeah. now our winner for mm. best guest star mm. was someone who there was actually a little bit of a little bit of disagreement here because mm. you actually nominated him for best supporting actor. Okay. And my thing is, it's an anthology series. He's only in one episode. So, so we let, so we guess, decided to give him Best Guest Star. Guess, best Guest Star. But what a fantastic performance as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde <laughs> from Anthony Andrews in the woefully short-lived Nightmare Classics. Nightmare Classics, an anthology show that each episode was based on a famous work of horror or gothic literature. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, there was a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde episode. And Jekyll and Hyde is one of those wonderful, wonderful roles that actors hope to get because you get to play two parts, essentially. Mm -hmm. And you get all the screen time and you get to play a, a kind of a meek character, but also a really fun, wicked character. Yeah. He did it. He nailed yeah. it. <laughs> this is actually, I think this is my favorite interpretation of the character mm -hmm. that I've seen because he doesn't fall into the trap of, because he's very, when you meet Jekyll, you're like, okay, this is Jekyll. I buy it. Mm. He's meek. He's uh, smart. In but he's, intellectual, socially yeah. awkward. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But when he turns into Hyde, he doesn't become a hulking brute. He doesn't even become cool. What he becomes is eerily confident. Confident to the point of sociopathy. Yeah. There's a scene, there's a horrifying scene, like truly horrifying, in a show that really wasn't known for being scary, mm. where he goes to uh, the house of the, his professor employer, mm. whose daughter, played by young Laura Dern, uh, he, uh, Jekyll is in love with. He just walks in the door and just starts beating and abusing them like he owns the place. It's like funny games. Yeah, yeah. It's just because he thinks he has the right, all of a sudden he yeah. does the most monstrous things imaginable and he barely has to do anything. He doesn't yeah, need to become a hulking monster. You, you don't He's need, just an asshole. You don't need any skill to command a room. All you need is confidence and a complete lack of self-awareness. Yeah, and, and, and often mm. evil. Yeah. Evil helps a lot. <laughs> and here he is just so evil by sheer force of will but he's not suave he actually has a very odd affected voice as Hyde mm. he's not well, the, if, he completely rejects the Hyde yeah. is going to be sexy and he completely rejects Hyde is going to be gross mm. Hyde is just this guy only twisted and just body language alone you might not even recognize the actor yeah, yeah. What a great performance! It is a great performance. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's move on to our next category. I don't. Yeah. I don't want to be belabor the point. We got a lot more categories. Indeed, to go. we do. Um, best supporting actor. Um, 
the first runner-up was kind of a co-lead, but I feel like they pushed her aside a lot. Well, when it comes to supporting actor and lead actor, uh. the the there's a reason the Academy sometimes waffles on this and makes the wrong choice. And maybe we made the wrong choice. We mm. don't know. We're trying to decide who is driving the show. Mm. And sometimes the protagonist, the title character is driving the show. Sometimes it's a two-hander. Sometimes it's a five-hander. Here, we, we had to make the call. Mm. Blade the series was Blade's show. Yeah. But you know who stole most of it was and Jill Wagner. Who gave the show any amount of humanity it had. Yeah. Uh, she had a lot of strength. She had a lot of confidence. And because of what her character was, the the outsider who was sort of inducted into the world of vampires, mm-hmm. we learned everything from through her eyes and got uh, kind of a, a, a moral and a point of view, which... <laughs> We couldn't say for Blade. Blade is too much of like this unstoppable badass. Well, he's brooding and he yeah. doesn't talk much and he mm. knows all the rules. And that character who exists mm. to have things explained to them can mm. often be the death of yeah. narrative fiction. But here they made it work because as someone who becomes a vampire in the pilot, she doesn't just learn the rules and adjust to society. She has to adjust mm. to a new wave of impulses. Yeah. And that is an interesting take that people do not focus on enough. Or if they do, you turn into Tom Waits in Bram Stoker's Dracula, where he's uncontrollably eating bugs. Mm. She had a really good arc, and man, it, it is a damn shame she doesn't like get bigger roles. She mm. is good. She is very good. She's excellent in this show, and we just want to mm. give her her props. Another one that <laughs> is arguably considered a co-lead. I, but I, I would call this a co-lead. You would call yeah. this a co-lead. Well, mm. this is another one where we disagreed a little bit, mm. and here's where she fit in. Uh, but Probe, a show we've already talked about, about a mad scientist genius who solves crimes and his personal assistant. Well, the personal assistant stole the show for both of us. It's <laughs> Ashley Crow in Probe. Boy, is she delightful. Well, and, and like, I, but like I said, the show is a balance. I think it works with both of them. Ashley Crow is good. Here's but my, here's my, she, she, that she balances the the male lead is is kind of what gives her a lot of her strength. Here's what I'll say. Hmm. If there was a contract dispute in season four, uh-huh. you could continue without Ashley Crow. You couldn't continue without Probe. Yeah, I guess you're... Well, I mean, because he's the, he's the premise is yeah, the problem. that's the thing. That's the okay. reason why I think there is an argument to be made that she is supporting. Uh, I however, that's fair, however, it, it works because of that particular character. However, uh, who gives a shit? She's fantastic. Whether yeah, she's yeah. in this category or another mm. category, we just wanted an excuse to talk about how amazing Ashley Crow is. She's hilarious on this show. Mm. And she manages to be the source of humor without constantly being the butt of a joke. Yeah. She he doesn't mock her. Or he, he does, fu- but she doesn't stand for it. She doesn't yeah. stand for it or when or he's just sort of playful yeah. about the sort of gap in their knowledge because the stuff he knows is stuff that no one knows. Yeah. You don't have to know that. <laughs> no one has to know that. But there's something just really exciting about just how objectively normal she is and then when she's thrown into these odd situations Mm-hmm. She responds in a human, believable way. She experiences wonder, yeah. where our protagonist does not. And yeah, the show wouldn't work without her. Yeah, I, I will grant you that. But uh, yeah, mm-hmm. is she lead? Arguably, but we put her in. <clears throat> uh, our our next uh, supporting actor is the cue to the lead character's James Bond. See what I did there? I do see what you did there because <laughs> it's Q. Because it's John Delancey in Legend. Uh, what I loved about John Delancey is how um, how snippy he was. Uh, <laughs> Legend is is a premise about a fellow who is asked to in. It's kind of like Three Amigos. He is asked to 
play a Western hero that he has written himself as in his novels, but who is definitely not in real life. He's actually the opposite of that. He's kind of a cad and a a Lothario. Mm. But a small town needs his help, so now he's asked to step up and present himself as he is in the books. Uh, He has access to all kinds of extraordinary machines. He needs somebody who can do that. Yeah. So enter John Delancey. Who is who is like Tesla. He's incredibly ahead of his time. He's built a whole bunch of machines that are totally anachronistic and he always has really long-winded names for them. Yeah, and, and ousted from the European scientific community, so he's got nothing better to do. Yeah. And he, so he's really bitter. And John Delancey is just one of the most reliable supporting actors you can find. Mm. Because he has energy and character and humor, but he also knows when he's not the star. Yeah, yeah. That's a tough thing to do, is to take up a lot of space. To ham ham it up without hogging the the spotlight. Exactly. So he knows that Richard Dean Anderson has the emotional journey at hand. Mm -hmm. But that leaves John Delancey a lot of room Mm -hmm. to be funny and sweet. There's a really great episode in which the entire town, which is like the only home he's ever known where they accepted him and his weird... Like he has like this giant Tesla coil that shoots lightning all over town and people all over town have like hair that's like permanently static electricity (laughs) up and they still like him. And there's this great episode with Robert Englund who I'm actually surprised didn't get in our oh, guest gosh, stars because yeah. oh, he's he really was, good in he it. Was really good, yeah. But like, there's an episode where Robert England like stirs up animosity in town against John Delancey. The hurt mm. he feels, his feelings are hurt <laughs> in a way that people in shows don't get to have that kind of betrayal very often. He's wonderful, yeah, and yeah. it's just great to be able to praise him. Um, Here's our number one runner-up is someone who I really, really, really just wanted to give the award to, but there was just someone else. It's right. so great. And she's an actor who, sadly, we haven't seen a lot of. Yeah. yeah. She well, co-starred this is, this in Pan Am. I've seen her in. She co-starred in Pan Am with Christina Ricci, who's mm-hmm. you know not an insignificant screen presence. She co-starred with Margot Robbie, who went on to huge things. Mm-hmm. Why haven't we seen more of the wonderful Kareen Vanessa? She was on Revenge. I mean, uh, I guess, yeah. but like, it's, seriously, she plays a character who they give her a Roman holiday episode mm. where she's wandering around, I think it's Italy, with this really hunky guy and she doesn't know he's a prince, but they give her the Audrey Hepburn role. She's a good Audrey Hepburn. Like, if you wanted to make <laughs> she a, could play Audrey if Hepburn. If you wanted to yeah. make a bi- Audrey Hepburn biopic, you get Corinne Vanessa, and I'm on mm. board. Mm. She is romantic she is funny she manages to play this soft-spoken character who brings so much depth into everything that she says and does even if she never gets to play it huge Mm. she has a wonderful romantic storyline she is a really tragic sad storyline where she finds out that she's jewish she was orphaned in world war ii Mm. and now all of a sudden her identity is completely changed and she can't marry the guy she wanted to because it's still a fucked up world what a really great storyline, and yeah, she's she, the show for me. She she's the show, and uh, like so many of these roles that we're we're drawn to, she's the one who's bringing the humanity. Yeah, she's the one who uh, has the human face. She's the one who has any compassion. Mm. You can tell that the showrunners were trying to build this sort of like sexed up, drugged up world of turmoil and drama, mm-hmm. and all of these characters were wrapped up in it. None of those characters had a moment saying, wait, let's just calm down and think what the right thing to do is. She had those parts and she did an exemplary job. Right. But uh, uh, I'm looking up her uh, her filmography. She's doing a lot of uh, TV and film in French Canada. Okay. Well, hopefully she's yeah, doing very well yeah. over there. Uh, but our number one winner 
As for a show, I honestly thought we'd be talking about more because you and I both really liked The Mayor. Yeah. It's a sweet show. It has its heart in the right place. Mm-hmm. It's good about civic activism. And the supporting turn by Yvette Nicole Brown uh-huh. as the mayor's mom. The mayor, if you'll recall, is a story about a, a, a young uh, rapper whose career can't get off the ground. And he decides as a marketing stunt to run for mayor. But he accidentally does too good a job and becomes mayor. Mm, and has to figure it all out. And it's... We were really excited about it because it makes like learning civics seem kind of fun and exciting. <laughs> yeah, it shows you about the yeah. importance of local politics, which is something that we don't talk about enough. A lot of the news stories that we have are about you know global politics or you know well, statewide dis- politics, disastrous politics. Yeah, but yeah. like on the local level, that's where shit gets done. That's mm. where the potholes get filled. Mm. This is a story about a guy who learns the importance of that, and over the course of only like half a season. Mm. You buy that journey, and his mom is played by Yvette Nicole Brown. She is a a postal worker in town, and I really love the story arc she has here because she loves her son. She also knows that he shouldn't be mayor. Yeah. So she's trying to support him, but she, she he, there's an episode where he finds out that she, she didn't vote for him. Yeah. <laughs> and she makes she has a really great moment where she was like, I didn't vote for you then. Mm. I'd have voted for you now. But back then you weren't serious about this. Yeah. And she's really funny. She, oh, he, well, Yvette Nicole Brown is she doesn't say no to anything. She is <laughs> you've you've that, seen but... you've seen her in a couple movies. Mm-hmm. She you've was seen in Avengers her on Endgame. talk shows. You've seen her on, yeah, you've seen her in sitcoms. You've seen her in just about anything because she'll do that. She'll do that job and she has that sort of professional sheen. She's going to sit down, she's going to have her personality, but she knows what's what. Yeah. And just seeing her have like a, a a more substantive role than I've ever seen her play before mm-hmm. proves that she's also a, a pretty damn decent actress as well. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so she is absolutely wonderful, and boy, was she should have gotten an Emmy nomination for this. She's hilarious. She has real heart to her. Yvette Nicole Brown, we salute you. We give you an award. Now, our nominees for Best Lead Actor, uh-huh. our first runner-up, is someone who and, and everyone a, loves. A, apologies, they're all men. I apologize for that. Well, we have a tie. Well, okay, well, there's we, have one one tie. Tie. Right. we have one tie. We have one tie. And uh, uh, actually, arguably, because although the character is a boy, mm. one of them is uh, actually, I believe, played by a woman. Oh, okay. So uh, let's start with mm-hmm. Darren McGavin and Kolchak the Night Stalker. <laughs> Darren McGavin. First off, again, this character is a gift. Mm. Not just to the audience, but to Darren McGavin. <laughs> He's a guy in a powder blue suit and, and like... A, and the worst possible trilby hat worn outside of Brooklyn. pork pie. Like, he looks terrible. <laughs> like, he's just this... The suit doesn't even fit him. I know. He's great. And he's just this schlubby guy who should really be mm. reporting on local politics. That's what mm. he should be doing. Like, kind of unromantic, unexciting, mm. boring local stories. And he keeps wandering into the path of zombies <laughs> and Vampires, and, multiple vampires. And what, what I love about Kolchak, I mean, Kolchak is a great character because of how um, how insistent he is and how uh, t- tenacious he is in pursuing the truth, but also how much of a fool he is in doing that. 
He's the idiot who stands up in front of the cops and says, you can't prove it wasn't a werewolf. And he looks like a maniac. And of course, he's totally right, but he doesn't know how to port himself and get people on his side. So he's always... One of my favorite... Oh, sorry. I crossed my legs and pushed the cat away. I apologize, Uh, Kitty. Yeah. Um, There's a really wonderful moment where he's trying to, like, secretly record... Uh, cops who are discussing a case and he's sneaking down a stairwell and he's out of frame at first and we hear the cops sort of discussing the details of the case and you just very slowly see a microphone enter the frame and dangle in front of the cops <laughs> and they, they keep on talking and the one of them sees like what the, yeah, what the and, and they look up and it's and it's Kolchak he's like what are you doing oh nothing I was just recording like He's such a ham. Like he's tr- he's such a he- he's so good at playing a bad actor. Yeah, and that takes a lot of talent. It really, really mm. does. He's mm. he's a real hoot in this. Mm. Uh, coming up next is someone who I swore, mm. I swore I would nominate. Okay, I swore in a stack of Bibles. I don't know where I got him, <laughs> but by God, all I swore on all of them from all those hotel rooms. Yeah, oh. uh, because the show was terrible, but mm. you cannot fault the performance. Of Benji, the dog. <laughs> Benji the dog. In Benji, Zacks and the Alien Prince, who I believe at the time was being played by Benjean. Okay. So, and it was all one dog throughout the whole series. Yeah, they didn't have like a bunch of dogs. This incredibly well-trained dog, like this dog, it, 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 it's a mutt. Yeah, it's not a it's not a dog who get a lot of respected dog shows or whatever. But this dog, you know, it can it answers the phone. There's a bit where it's in a chase with somebody and it runs up the side of a wall mm. for a while, like it's wall <laughs> running, like it's Lucio and Overwatch. And you're just sort of frequently in every episode, it's so cheap. It's so crap. Mm. The writing is terrible. The other acting is terrible. The visual effects are terrible. The, the, the dog the, is impeccable. I, I'll, I'll agree with that. The dog is fine. The dog is a winner. You make a show around that dog. It, it would have been a lot worse if they had like a really poorly trained dog. But yeah. Benji, Benji is professional. Benji, Benji, Benji is a professional. Benji mm-hmm. brought their A game. Yeah. So kudos to Benji. <laughs> in, in even in the worst Benji movie, Oh mm-hmm. Heavenly Dog, not just one of the worst, not just the worst Benji movie, maybe one of the worst movies. <laughs> just period. Yeah. The dog was fine. The dog is fine. The dog is a better performance than than Chevy Chase and Omar Sharif. Fair. That's fair. Give us our next uh, runner-up. Oh, our next one is uh, one of those characters that I feel should be going down and sort of like as a cult icon. People like, should be dressing should, up as this like, character. Like, yeah. like, I, I see a lot of like postcards where it's like, and, and here's... Uh, Jason Voorhees and Leatherface just sort of hanging out at home. This guy should be in those little uh, dioramas Mm -hmm. because he plays Julian Slink. The actor is named Colin Cunningham, and he plays a character named Julian Slink on Blood Drive, who is the MC of the show. And at first, you think he's just kind of a fun steampunk MC. He's got the top hat and the funny beard. He's not going to be an important character. He's just there. Green teeth, and he says really sinister things. And we're going to introduce this next person. It's a great role. It's fun to play. Sure. But insignificant. Memorable, but insignificant. But he becomes one of the lead characters Mm -hmm. real quick. Oh, yeah. And we, we learn not only that he has to answer to the corporate overlords... And there's, but that he's also this depraved, like sexual deviant. <laughs> yeah, he's a genetic, like he's a yeah. genetically manipulated monster who cannot die. Yeah, uh, he is just one of the weirdest, most wonderful characters. My favorite and, bit with uh, him in this show—it's not when he's killing people. It's mm-hmm. not when he gets to dress as a cowboy. It's it's 
when he has to be in a waiting room. That is such a great... So here's a guy who, for like four episodes, all we've done is see him run this homicidal maniac road race Mm. and have crazy sacks and horrible murders. And then he's called in. He's like, listen, I'm really busy this week. I'm doing the show right now. It's like, no, we need to see you at the corporate office. And it's just him in the waiting room, sitting there trying to be patient while this really annoying guy starts talking about how he's going to get this big new job. Mm. And Slink starts thinking it's like his job that they're giving that this <laughs> this moron his job and then he brutally so he murders the guy in the waiting room uh-huh. it's like a stephen king story <laughs> and it's hilarious and it turns out he was going for a different job well, <laughs> well one of my favorite is is uh, colin cunningham was clearly improvising where he's on the phone with the corporate overlords oh my god yeah that's and it's it's, it's like a bob newhart routine because we only see his end of the phone yes i'll wait no i don't want to yes i'd be happy to rip your head off you know he's <laughs> He's such an indelible, great performance, an indelible character. Iconic he sh- character. He should be a cult icon. I, I'm, I'm surprised he wasn't selected as our, as our number one. Well, uh, the, yeah. our top three where we all voted for all of them, right. and I think we had a reason for going with the number one. Our number two is a tie, uh-huh. because this is one where the show definitely doesn't exist without both characters, and the show would be nothing without mm. both actors and they both brought some really sort of familiar type of roles and they brought something really special to it it's John Cho and mm. Karen Gillan in Selfie yeah which is a really delightful sitcom I, I thought it was okay you liked okay. it better more I than I liked me. it more than you um, did, but they're good in it yeah they're good in it um, Luca stop knocking my, things over what my, my central beef with the show was Karen Gillan's character not Karen Gillan I actually think Karen Gillan is great in this show I just don't like that it was told from her perspective I thought that Everything around her was more interesting, but that's that's my own personal beef. I know a lot of people. I said that to Sam Levine, who was on the show, and I think he's hated me ever since. That's probably true. Yeah. <laughs> that's the of, danger when we yeah. have people who've been on the it's show. Like, I, so I we just, have to I, be honest. I, I gotta and, be honest. I, 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 there's problems with selfie, and uh, well, he didn't like that I had problems with freaks and geeks either. So, uh, so he doesn't talk to either of us. No, Great. he talks. He talks to me fine. He talked to you too if he saw you more often. You're not on the show very often. That's true. And, and he he was perfectly he, friendly. He's a nice guy. I saw him, but. Uh, but yeah, uh, John Cho really nails a certain kind of uh, a kind of archetypal button-down character, but he brings a lot of personality to it mm-hmm. because he's John Cho and he's really talented. Well, he doesn't let that character yeah. rest on their laurels. He yeah. lets that character he, that character isn't undignified because mm-hmm. they're snooty. He's mm-hmm. actually got a lot going on, yeah, and he's, he th- like they gave him David Hyde. It's like you're David Hyde Pierce and Fraser. Well, can I bring something more to it? Yeah, do whatever. Okay, because I'm John freaking Cho. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to make this character mm. sexy. I'm going to make this character sad. Mm, I'm going to give, make... give him some romantic longing. Gonna, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Give him some good banter and some wit and intelligence. And Karen Gillan is kind of the same but the opposite, mm. where at first she's presented as incredibly shallow, and she has to learn not to be shallow, which yeah. is a really difficult kind of path to take, especially on an extended basis. You can do it in like one night mm. with like uh, Christmas Carol kind of vibe and it feels very satisfying but she has to relapse she has to go back and forth and that's a tough role to play and still mm. make us like her yeah and yeah. we love her yeah in this and again you know we didn't like the character so much but she herself is wonderful well, and, and again, this kind of sitcom relies on do these two people have mm. chemistry yes 
so much. It's coming uh, out of their ears. It, it's it's not that I didn't like the character. It's that I didn't like that she was the lead. I feel okay. I feel like John Cho is a, or rather just have an ensemble. We don't need even need John Cho to be the lead. You just have them all working in an office together. And I thought that work dynamic was interesting enough. I feel to like, carry the show. I feel like the show was evolving into that. Much like yeah. Ally McBeal started off as here's a story of Ally McBeal. Yeah. By the end of the first season, it was about the entire office. Right. I have a feeling that's where Selfie was going because they had a really good ensemble in that show. Mm-hmm. But our number one winner, mm-hmm. and if you've been paying attention, you can probably guess who this <laughs> is because we are deeply in love with John Eric Hexum and Voyagers. <laughs> Travel through time to help history along. Give it a push where it's needed. When the Omni's red, it means history's wrong. Our job is to get everything back on track. Well, and I, part of it is because, uh, good God, what an attractive man. Oh my God. I, 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 I hate to be the person who's just commenting on the way an actor looks, but... I mean, we have to address how handsome he is. Yeah, it's the elephant in the room. Yeah, he, yeah. he, he is a, like super magazine pinup kind of stud. And he's and got this great deep He-Man voice, uh, you know? He's just he's, what yeah, a, piercing what a, blue eyes. He's just a really good looking guy. Really great presence. But in addition to just being a good looking man that's fun to look at, uh, he actually is uh, does bring that kind of fraternal quality that we've talked about on Voyagers. He is a... a a bit of a dummy, but he's not uh, anybody's fool. Uh, he's, uh, you know, does all the heavy lifting, but he's not a brute. And he comes to become a lot more compassionate pretty quickly in looking after this, like, little brother character. Right. And he starts, like, having increasingly emotional storylines as the series goes on. There's an episode in which he falls in love with someone who was, I think, supposed to fall in love with. Was it young? He was supposed to fall in love with someone famous, uh-huh. but then he fell in love with her instead, and he starts wondering, well, why can't I be happy? And they have yeah. a real a real connection mm. that you don't get a lot in that kind of supporting character. Like, it doesn't feel like, oh, what a tragedy that this romance... This one feels tragic. Mm. And if we didn't believe in him, if he was just the boring stud, that would never work. Yeah. And that episode just sort of proves just what a great impact John Eric Hexham had. Yeah. The, uh, also the episode where he, he was going to leave his little brother with his family, like progenitors of, of his. Yeah, like his great grandfather. He was going to ra- yeah, raise his own grandfather. And uh, and that was a good ep- episode for John Eric Hexham as well, where he yeah. kind of had to say, well, this this might be the right thing. I'm mm-hmm. going gonna to make a decision. And, you know, he's not necessarily, he's not talking to the, the kid saying, mm-hmm. hey, I'm making this decision. He's just going to back off. And, mm-hmm. and then just never come yeah. back. And then the kid runs after him. Mm-hmm. And boy, did they earn that beat. Yeah. It's yeah. beautiful, beautiful work. Right, let, let's, let's steam through these a little bit quicker. Yeah, because the next yeah. category is a new category we wanted to add because we've had a lot of shows in which the entire cast is great, but picking out just one is really difficult. Mm. So we wanted to add a best ensemble category, which personally right. I think they should have at the Academy Awards. Uh. It's. It would only be for a very limited type of movie, but yeah. Sure. Um, so let's work on our first runner-up. This is a show. You thought for, you. This was your idea mm. to, to nominate this one because I don't actually fully agree with this. So I'm going to let you just take the reins on. Why well, did you nominate John from Cincinnati? John from Cincinnati is more like they assembled a good cast. And uh, that that was enough for me <laughs> in a lot of ways, <laughs> even though they all play 
pretty horrendous characters. They're all, they're all kind of horrendous in the same way. Um, yeah, I guess there's a consistency yeah. to it, but I actually don't like most of the performances on this show. Like, I actually <laughs> think a lot of them just don't feel very genuine. I think they feel very arch. But you're right. It is a great who's who. Yeah, that, that that's that's why I nominated Yeah, John Luke Perry, Cincinnati. the late Luke Perry, is really mm-hmm. good on this show. Bruce Greenwood. Yeah, uh, uh, Rebecca De Mornay is on here. Uh, you know, that they got some... Yeah, Ed O'Neill plays a really surreal role. Weird um, Louis, character. Louis Guzman is always a delight. Um, they got a real surfing champion as well mixed in there. So mm-hmm. maybe they were all just trying to, like, act to his level. <laughs> Maybe. But everybody was just sort of really hysterical. And you can tell that they're all trying to figure out what it is. Yeah. And when you see a lot of people sort of in the trenches that way, you start to develop a, a warmth. I suppose like that's true. But all, I, of all this mutual suffering. However, this show. I would argue that that's one of the dangers of our show is that we had to spend so much time with these shows. We sort of acclimate to whatever level they're on. Yeah. So yeah. sometimes we can like things more start, than maybe start, they warrant. Start, start to become fond of these people just through mutual suffering. But I will tell mm. you this. I am very confident that uh, Dead Last deserves a spot on here. Yeah. Because this was this was a hoot. This was a show that you and I were both kind of surprised by. This is part yeah. of a poll. People voted for it. It's about a rock and roll band in the early 2000s who, <clears throat> through contrived machinations, all developed the ability to talk to ghosts. They have a magic amulet. And, this and all, is, all three of them in the band. The problem. Yeah. And this is one of those rare shows where every episode, everyone gets something to do. They were really good about balancing the stories. And although there was always clearly an A plot and a B plot, they were good at rotating through. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, I agree. And so, Mm. yeah, this is a good show because every episode of this show Mm. was humorous. There was a little bit of uh, humanity to it because we're dealing with a lot of stories about grief Mm. and regret. And, yeah, the title of the Beans is really wonderful mm. here. There's a really wonderful revolving door ensemble cast that just keeps to come in, have a really funny gag. Um, the bad guy, I'm sorry, is it, is Tuvok in this? Is that what I'm thinking of? Tim Russ. Tim yeah. Russ. Tim Russ is in this as a, uh, as a uh, 1970s, mm. like, shaft type detective. He gets a whole bit to himself. So even though. Oh, Tim even, Russ didn't play the shaft detective. Oh, Tim, Tim Russ had a different role. I thought he. Yeah. Oh. But yeah. Well, then I'm wrong. You're, it's, it's all right. They're, they're both notable. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But moving on. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, next up, you cannot avoid it, much like you cannot avoid this cat playing with boxes. <laughs> That's what you're hearing in the background. Hi, Luca. How are you? I wish Luca was chattier so we could put him on mic more often. Luca, you want to give us some meow? There's Luca, kitty. We're pitting no a cat. No meows? We're stopping. Okay. A little intermission while we pet a cat. Okay. But you're about to mention Freaks and Geeks. Because, of course. Because we, we yeah. Honestly. Everyone went on to do better things. They all just displayed how talented they were right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. It's all really great. Honestly, but, giving it an award is almost a cliche. Yeah. <laughs> we, we gave it the, the um, Best Future Star Award, and we just couldn't mm. quite justify giving it Ensemble mm. 2. But there's a really good argument that it mm. deserves it. Much like there's a really good argument that our final runner-up deserves it, mm. uh, Selfie. Yeah. We just started talking about what a great ensemble cast it mm. has. And everyone on the show, everyone who works at the office mm. has a fun uh, uh, character who is really uh, prone to great mm. comedy. There's a lot of great supporting stars on it. Uh-huh. Just a really wonderful sitcom from top to bottom in terms mm. of the cast. And as the series progressed, that supporting cast kept getting more to do. And that's when the show really started to find itself. Okay. So, selfie. But our number one... Mm-hmm. It's Cop Rock. Of course it's Cop Rock. Get out to give you something. You wait 
So Cause again, because everybody sang and danced, everybody had interesting characters. Everybody, almost every single character had a moment where they got to sing about mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah, I've got to remember, Cop Rock is a show that, again, it's 90% a dead serious mm-hmm. Hill Street Blues, NYPD Blue Cop show. Yeah. And yet every actor had to be ready at a moment's notice mm-hmm. to break into song, sometimes a ludicrous song. Mm-hmm. And or become like part of the background of someone else's song. And it's not a show that's designed terribly well to be a musical. It's really awkwardly structured. I think it works fine. I think it works fine, but it's not like the story doesn't necessarily always revolve around the song. As long as the song just sort of pop up. Mm. So you never know (laughs) who you're going to get a song from or what about. And yeah, you have to be incredibly game. And I think everyone in this cast brought in. Well, there there was a time when triple threat was you could act, you could sing, and you could dance. Yeah. Uh, people don't care about dancing anymore. When was the last time you saw dancing in a blockbuster movie? It's really, really rare. <sighs> yeah. Uh, if, if you have music, it's something like A Star is Born where it's just singing and not performative. Uh, I think the triple threat now is acting, singing, and stunt work. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of what's replaced dancing now. I think that's fair. Yeah, if, if you can fight, that that's what they're looking for. Uh, but from Cop Rock is a good segue to our next category, Weirdest Series. <laughs> and once again, there was no shortage mm. of weird, <laughs> weird, weird. John from Cincinnati wasn't nominated. <laughs> we couldn't agree on John from Cincinnati. I think just because it was bad. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it yeah, was trying is, so hard to be weird. This is weird, but it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you could probably say that for some of these. Oh, so let's talk true. about uh, one of the many, many, many weird shows. Oh. Uh, this is our top five weirdest shows that we reviewed. Uh, run, right up, first off the bat, show we haven't talked about yet, much to my surprise, K-9000. Well, because the only thing it has going for it is how weird it is. Yeah. It's, okay, so it's it's about a cop with a robot dog partner, or I guess a robot brain dog partner. And the yeah. dog is part of some sort of experiment. It breaks out. It becomes a dog partner. It can communicate with the human. Psychically. And it, and it doesn't know how to be a dog. Yeah. So it's also figuring it out. So he's got to teach it how to play ball. Play ball. It's like, yeah. what, what is that fire hydrant? I'm feeling weirdly drawn to it. Because, of course, a fire hydrant is part of, like, a dog's program. <laughs> it's the perfect It's the perfect combination oh. of Puchinski, which is also one of the weirdest shows we've ever reviewed, mm. and Almost Human. Yeah, yeah. Which is just such an odd thing. And it's from the writer of Die Hard. So, that, that, yeah, that's the weirdest part of it. Yeah. Moving on. Uh-huh. Another show we've mentioned already. Mm-hmm. Benji, Zax, and the Alien Prince. Now, I want you to picture this. You got Benji. Mm. You, make, you can make a show about Benji. Benji, one of the most beloved mm. like child-type Pop. stars. Like Kids love Benji. Adults respect Benji. The Benji movies are mostly hits. And you're going to get to do a TV show about Benji. Okay, what are you going to do? You're going to do a story about a kid and their dog mm. tried and true you're gonna do story of benji as some sort of rescue animal perhaps or are you gonna go the obvious route 
<laughs> and, and have an alien prince, a, a, a fallen alien prince, and his robot mm-hmm. who crash land on Earth and are on in, the run in the from outskirts of Pacoima, California, or wherever the hell they are. The dingiest, like it, half the episodes look like they place take place on or near a septic tank. Yeah, it's like just just off of the freeway overpass where you flung the body. It's. it's <laughs> Just terrible, terrible it's a place. Depressing looking yeah. show. Look, we found a boat. That's not a boat. That okay? That was a boat once. <laughs> it's been in this pool of Miller High Life for a year. <laughs> the bottom is dissolved. Yeah. <laughs> Miller High let's Life. Move into, let's move into this boat. Great. I really hope you're having tetanus shots every day. <laughs> Because that is a horrible place. If you ever get a chance to see Benji, Zach's, and the Alien Prince, do! It's weird! Mm. Moving on. Maybe the weirdest title we're going to have. Yeah. Fred and Barney (laughs) meet the thing. Okay, so you have the thing. (laughs) You don't have the Fantastic Four. You have the Fantastic One. Yeah. Just the rocky guy from Brooklyn. Well, I assume they had the Fantastic Four, and they said, we gotta cut the dead weight off of this thing. And cut three of the four, you have just the thing. Okay, it's just the thing. He's a superhero. That's great. You can do a superhero show. Plenty of good good guy, bad guy kid stories you can write about Mm -hmm. the thing. No, we have to change the thing. Yeah, he's not good enough. He's not good enough. Okay, so it's a secret identity. All right, thing has a secret identity. Fine, he transforms into the thing. Not really. See, it's about a kid who... Matches his magic rings together, and he becomes okay. And he becomes the thing, like the Hulk, right? No, he, he's like bodily replaced by the thing, like he vanishes. Yeah, a bunch of rocks fly in from and off like, screen, and and he and becomes pummel, pummel his old body into nothingness. So, and he has a new personality now. He's a new okay. That's a little mm. that's a little strange. And what does he do? He hangs out with teen friends. Yeah, they once they'll go to picnics. Mm. They'll, uh, they'll go to a circus. They go to talent a circus. Uh, they go to a circus. Oh, no, don't forget. They go to a ghost town, and mm. then another time they go to a ghost town. That's right. One time they go to the zoo and take pictures. This is the superhero <laughs> show we used to have, where a you teenager would take Cracker remember, Jack yeah. rings, shove them together, and yell, Thing ring, do your thing, remember, uh, and turn into an old Brooklynite who smokes cigars. You know all those really insufferable think pieces that adult geeks write about how they never got superheroes right? This is what they were talking about. Yeah, we're really <laughs> spoiled now. Like, like, it used to be like you would defend your superhero movies because if it was anything even vaguely decent, uh-huh. if you got a two-star superhero movie or TV show, you embraced that and you protected it because seriously, Thing Ring Do Your Thing was about as good as it got for a while. Yeah, yeah. So this is why and here's the weird thing. Stan Lee, the creator of these characters, was, or a lot of these characters anyway, was much more intimately involved with these productions mm-hmm. than he was than he ever was with any of the movies that are coming out now. Yep. He like, he, like he, he has a cameo, but... kids. Who cares? Yeah, he was fine. Like, and, it's just a stupid show. Well, and he was an idea guy. It's like, well, let's come up with these new ideas. He had to come up with 50 a day. Of course, like, 80% of them are going to suck. <laughs> just the sheer <laughs> volume dictates that. Anyway. It's like, well, what? Are, how are you going to do the thing into a TV series? Okay, well, the thing is going to have a ring, because he's a thing ring. Okay, Stan. <laughs> Whatever. All right, we get to burn through the last two because we talked about them a lot already. Our last runner-up, it's not the weirdest show we've done. How is this possible? Uh. Where's Rodney? (laughs) Rodney Dangerfield is himself. Again. As the supporting character. Teleported into a small kid's room to give him dating advice. Uh. 
this was the show. And yeah. everyone said, fine. <laughs> everyone said, cool, let's run with it. Mm. I'll never... Oh God, it would kill to be a fly on the wall. <laughs> what, a, what a great meeting that yeah, must have yeah. been. How much cocaine was on the table? <laughs> Could you see the executive producer's yeah. head? Was the cocaine pile that big? <laughs> the cat just sneezed. There was so much cocaine. <laughs> And uh, But our number one, our weirdest series, we peaked early because this was the first episode of the yeah. season. Cop Rock. Cop Rock. The city gives you such a run around. Those bits of pushes only put you down. And lawyers ain't the only game in town. That's a migraine and a hat. I won't put you through. I'm the baby merchant. Cops are us. It's just such, such a strange premise. It, it, the cat just doesn't want to get out of this box. Are no. you okay, Luca? The cats okay, love no, bo- a bag. That's cats great. love boxes. That's fine. That's fine. But yeah, Cop Rock. We're going to do a serious show about like killing suspects in cold blood mm. and racism and uh, child slavery. Mm. With songs! With music. Is Whee! It seems it seems really weird to us just because of the the public's perception of musicals. But you know, if you think of it in the context of like a rock musical, it kind of makes sense. I and mean, when you're watching it, it's totally it feels natural to me. After a while, you get used to it. Describing it to somebody else makes it sound like the worst possible idea. Well, just find any scene on YouTube and just show it to somebody, yeah. especially if it has like a little bit of the build up, like it's a real scene yeah. for thirty seconds, and yeah. then I'm your baby merchant plays. <laughs> it's really surreal. Real, mm. and yeah, it's surreal, and yeah, I, I I was torn on it at the time because I honestly don't think they ever quite found the right tone. Okay, but I'm so glad it exists. Yeah, what a, what a, yeah. What a weird treat. All right, uh, we we only have a few characters left. Uh, a few, few categories. Ca- categories, excuse me, left. Yep. Uh, the next up is our worst series. Oh golly, there we were saw so, so many bad ones. So many just and, uh, crappy just th- shows. Things that were difficult to watch, things that were misguided, things that were poorly executed, and uh, in many cases, all of those. Uh, our la- our fifth runner-up was perhaps predictably Marvel's Inhumans. Yeah. Uh, a misguided idea. I mean, based on a weird comic to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, miss- bad focus, bad special effects. Oh, terrible um, visual effects. Just, just uh, really one, yeah, one miserable or t- looking show. One or two interesting character moments. Moments, but nothing that really kind of make the, the show yeah. take off. The only interesting thing about the show was like the last scene. Yeah. Which again was so intriguing, it almost made me want it to continue. But man, that is a waste of everyone's time and money. It really is. Yeah. And, and I. I don't even know what they were trying to get at in terms of like the the MCU at large because they it all takes place in the same universe. Yeah, like they could conceivably be in an Avengers film. I know they kind of are divorced TV from the movies a little bit, but mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I don't know what wrinkle they were trying to introduce that Inhumans would have brought, and I I think. If it had been a feature film, there would have been some element in there that would have played into the, the universe at large. Well, it was originally going to be. Mm. And then they were like, no, no, we have enough material for a show. No, you didn't. No, you really didn't. Moving on. Emily's Reasons Why Not. Mm. A show that, again, we just talked about episodes of this show that I'd forgotten. I've forgotten them again. <laughs> I no longer just... have the show. Was there a show where she had to take a nap? And again, it's it's not that it was grievously offensive too much. It's just that it was un, like 
flavorless. They There's didn't no do, selling they didn't point. Do anything. Yeah. The only selling point is you got Heather Graham. Like and nothing else. They didn't it. ask you to do anything. You didn't come up with a character for yeah. her. It's just it, it's it's. If, if you had let Heather Graham improvise, she could have come up with a better character. If you let any act, all those actors just make up words, <laughs> not even real words, just yeah. make them up, you would have had a more interesting mm. show. It's not <clears throat> terrible. It just it's nothing. Mm. It's water and toast. But you forgot to toast it. <laughs> All right. And that's stale. All right. Next up, a show we just talked about. John from Cincinnati. A show yeah. that I know has fans. It has fans, and I think people are sort of wrapped up in its ambition. It's clearly trying to say something. The problem is, it actually doesn't know what that is. It has some profound things to say about... Uh, faith, perhaps, or religion, or and the maybe magic what it got there in future culture. seasons as the series progressed. Yeah, I mean, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of Christian allegory going on, but it's not a clear Christian allegory, and everybody is so toxic in the mm-hmm. show, and everybody is so be- all the actors are so befuddled. This is why I nominated for best ensemble. Everybody's equally befuddled. I'm suffering with them. <laughs> okay, but I don't know if that's necessarily okay. worthy. Of- Luca. Okay, you, you keep on talking. I'm going to arrest you, Luca. Luca's in a bag. All right. Uh, well, cat's in the need, bag. You need fewer bags. <laughs> Clearly. Sorry about that, everybody. Uh, so, John from Cincinnati, it's trying to be weird, and as a result, Is I don't it, respect it. No. I mean, it's, it's, it never feels genuine. It feels at, like you something... You look at Bone Chillers, and Bone Chillers is made by weird people. True. People who are interested in this weird, freaky stuff. Mm, that's classy, but it is yeah. weird. John from Cincinnati is a completely normal person who's never had a weird thought in their life trying to trying to fake it. Mm-hmm. And I hate that. Because <laughs> I, I can tell. It's incredibly insincere. I can always it, tell. It drives yeah. me up the wall. Uh, another thing that struck me as very insincere... Mm. Totally pandering, but to who? I don't know. <laughs> Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids. Uh, we're, gonna, just, we're gonna pander to kids and give them what they want. Kids, you think this is what kids want? Yeah, kids want. What was okay? There was a movie that I found out that this show ripped off, and I want to thank uh, Alonzo Duralde for oh, pointing for, for it digging out. This up, for yeah. digging it out. Hold on, it's called. You gotta look it up. One second. I just wanna make sure but I can the, the premise right. of The premise of the show, just to reiterate, uh, yeah, uh, te- teenage rock band somehow came into the employ of a CIA like spy organization mm-hmm. that is run by an intelligent computer, not a human being, and it sends them on uh, spy missions under the guise of them being a rock band, mm-hmm. and also they have a Scooby like dog. Okay, I, I almost called it The Asphix, which is the mm-hmm. wrong movie. It's The Finks. Oh, the Finks, yeah. Yeah, yeah it is yeah. a story about yeah, yeah. a rock and roll band who is that's recruited right. to I, be a group of secret agents. Oh, that's right. You know what? I've I've seen the Finks. Yeah. Saw it at the, at the Cine Family back in the day. Yeah. Really odd. Yeah, well, they turned that into a kid's show because, of course, they did. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's a bunch of kids. They have a theoretically a, uh, a Western-themed band, but they actually don't play Western music or, mm. or country music. Um, and they get called all around the world. I'll say this much. It's not as bad as Drac Pack. Uh, potato, potato. I actually... <laughs> there, there's at least, like, original songs in every episode. They're not memorable, but no. they at least tried to do that. And yeah, it's just it's a show that just sort of 
defies you to come up with a reason to watch it. Yeah. Like, why would you do this? Surely, even when there are only three uh, channels, because, oh, yeah, you easy. watch one or the other. Because you're too stoned to change the channel. The, That's, the remote uh, control is all the way over there, uh, and I can't move. <laughs> I, I actually... If, if I move, the, the, the cereal bowl poised on my chest will spill. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to propose to you uh, a rule change for worst series oh. uh, for next year. Sergio is with me on this. <laughs> I'm going to propose a rule change. Uh, we're going to have it understood that all the Hanna-Barbera shows are bad. Yeah. We don't yeah. need to even nominate them. If, look, if we find a good one, I'll be surprised. If we find a good one, we'll mention it. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, we're just going to like... It turns out Jabberjaw is great! <laughs> <laughs> but our number one, our worst series. Uh-huh. What an ugly, pointless, stupid chore this turned out to be. Uh. And of course, it's one of the ones we were gung-ho about. <laughs> It's vampires! (laughs) When a mysterious meteor crashes into a lonely junkyard, Derelict vans and cars take on human-like life. The vampires suck the gas from innocent cars to feed their need for speed and drain the planet of all its fuel. Only four teenagers, transformed by the media, stand between the vampires and a world sucked dry and running on empty. Part team, part car, all hero. The motivators must fight the night to save the day. So check your fear and get in gear. The vampires are here. Talk about stupid premise. Let's, uh, yeah. shall we? So it's another teen rock band. Uh, all teenagers want to be in a rock band. They're, they're, not, they're not in a rock band. Sure, whatever. They want, to be, they want to be car mechanics. No, they're in a rock band. <laughs> Let me have this. No, okay, it's a bunch of teenage gearheads, and they have no character. And magic space meteor turns them into transformers that can turn into vans they are turned they into to, they're, they're turned, turned into vampires they're turned into vampires when they jump into the trunks of their various cars and, put, and insert their index fingers into the ignitions their index fingers turn into keys uh. Uh, they turn into ridiculously ugly CGI characters uh. who are basically like anthropomorphic vehicles but they're kind vampires, of? and they have to drink gasoline in order mm. to survive, and they have to fight evil vampires. Now, that in and of itself is so stupid, you'd think it would get a spot on here just for that. This show is like shoving chalk into your eyes <laughs> and then scratching yeah, it. So, oh, gosh. Because it's, the, it's from early... I understand you can't do a lot with CGI during this era of TV. You have low budgets, and you have to do it quickly. Yeah. So what you have to do is find a way to make that work. And we compared it, uh, when we did the episode, compared it to Reboot, which had similar limited types of computer animation, but they were able to find scenarios and character designs that they could do quickly and convincingly. Uh-huh. They didn't bother like coming up with interesting designs, uh, good scenarios, mm-hmm. and all of the characters, this really got my goat, was 
they had sort of like stand still cycles, mm. not just walk cycles, like how they walked, but whenever they were standing like idle still, animation, yeah, yeah. I, uh, idling, and they would move so much while they were idling. It's like they were all doing the twist at all given moments, <laughs> like just sort of moving their torsos and moving their hands a lot. It's like stop it, hold still, hold still. Like you have to pause it and just pretend it's part of the show, just so you can calm down a little bit. It's so hard to look at, and all the characters are overacting. The jokes mm-hmm. aren't funny. The stories are bad. And it's, just it's a like, reminder: the adult supervision character uh, is named Van Hilsing. Van Hilsing. Mm. Yeah, I got it. I hated this show. Yeah. Moving on. Mm. <laughs> Moving on. Two categories left. Uh, lastly, we uh, second to last, we have the Audience Award. This is actually uh-huh. an award for us. This is an award in which uh, our subscribers at Patreon, patreon.com slash critic acclaim, the banner under which all of our podcasts (laughs) are now located, Mm -hmm. uh, you get to nominate the favorite episode of our show Mm -hmm. for the last season. And based on those votes, we're going to take that into serious consideration as we move forward. Mm -hmm. And we're going to try to give you more like it. Yeah. Uh, So... We had a lot of nominations. Everyone who was nominated is going to get their name in the Totoro Hat of Doom. And they will be selected by Luca, who's getting over a mild eye infection. So we're going to wait a couple more days to put him on camera. Uh So that he feels, you know, camera ready and and gorgeous. He's fine. (laughs) He's he's having the drops. He's already almost better. a bit of a diva. Yeah. Uh, But, uh, yeah, soon our kitten will select four winners. Mm. And those winners, uh, everyone who nominated... uh, four winners will get to choose various episodes of future podcasts. Mm. And we're very excited to see what you got coming up for us. Uh, now the runners up mm. shows that got the most uh, nominations. There was a tie for fifth or uh, rather a tie for fourth okay. because there were three of them uh, was cop rock, John from Cincinnati and silver surfer. Mm. Uh, Cop Rock and John from Cincinnati, you like the weird stuff? Silver Surfer, you like good comic book stuff. So <laughs> thank you for that. Well, I think what people respond to is when we're passionate. Yeah. And when we find find something that we love, uh, it comes through on the show, I guess. And people like to hear that. And so, yeah, we, we really dug Silver Surfer. Yeah. Just really, really into it. So we were, I think people enjoyed hearing us just... Cavell about how great it was, and and in fact, even though we joke about how much our our fans like to hear us suffer, um, all of the uh, best episode nominees, the main nominees, mm. were mostly shows that we really dug. Case in point, the next runner up, the Elvira show, <laughs> where we got to talk about how much we love Elvira because yeah, who yeah. doesn't love Elvira? She's the best. Nah. And we already talked about how great that show is. I have nothing more to add. You should see it. It's readily available online. It's hilarious, and it sh- I think it should be seasonal viewing for Halloween. Yeah, yeah. Uh, next up, we had Voyagers. Yeah, we really enjoyed it. it. Turns out it's great. Pretty great show. <laughs> Who the hell knew? Yeah. It's a delightful program. Pretty, not, not, not a perfect show, but yeah. yeah so enjoy, did, uh, enjoyed watching it. Uh, next up, Where's Rodney? Because <laughs> we hated it so much. We hated it, but I love hating this weird yeah, show. Yeah. Like, it's so... Why is this? Who wanted this? <laughs> Who convinced Rodney Dangerfield this was a good idea? What a weird day. So, yeah, not surprised where's Rodney end up our number two. But our number one, uh, proving once again that actually you do kind of like it when we love things. Your pick for the best episode was Blood Drive. Yeah. And I think in addition to... Being able to hear us be really enthused about something, Blood Drive is a fun show to talk about. Because every episode yeah. is weird It's and really bizarre. weird. There's a lot going on in it. It's really busy, but that's part of the design. And um, 
Yeah, there's and there's so much context to put it in as well. Yeah, and yeah, and it's also really weird and culty and fun and mm. has all these indelible characters and it's a lot of fluids. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, all of those like all of those shows, honestly, oh. like even John from Cincinnati, which I didn't care for, but at the very least is distinctive. Mm. They deserve cult followings. Yeah, yeah, I've earned those cult followings, and kudos to them. But the time has come for our number one category, the best series. And in our opinion, the best show we got to see. And we've only had two of these so far. <clears throat> the first winner was Perversions of Science, mm-hmm. the short-lived, failed, sci-fi-oriented spinoff of Tales from the Crypt, which is still a hoot. <laughs> uh, and uh, last year, we had... Whitney? What did we have last year? <laughs> I, I, I totally forgot. How did you forget? Uh, no, it was, the, it was the College Campus Vigilante show. Oh yeah, Sweet Vicious. Sweet Vicious, which is um, I was trying to jog your memory. I wanted okay. to give it to you. <laughs> okay. like that show is one of the like, best shows I, I've seen in years, and it's, it's a it's, real shame it didn't get. Picked it, up. I haven't forgotten Sweet Vicious. I just forgot that was our selection. Oh uh, yeah, okay. Sweet Vicious is is a terrific show. Yeah, um, and it was a real discovery. Yeah, yeah. And all of the shows that we uh, nominated for here, all of our runners up and everything, they're wonderful shows as well. But mm. uh, our top five were mm. Luca. Put it away. <laughs> Drum roll, and, and we don't have to describe them. Let's just run them. Well, back. I, uh, I want right. to give an extra second because we didn't talk too much about two of these. Right. Uh, first off, Legend. Yeah. Which is, we didn't give it a lot of awards, but man, is it a really well-constructed it show. It is totally decent. Everyone talks there's, there's about... There's no reason it should have been canceled. Everyone talks about the Avengers of Briscoe <laughs> County Jr. to this day. Yeah, we know. We're going to do it someday. We're, we're saving it for a special occasion. <laughs> Legend is the show that... Just like Briscoe County only lasted one season and was a steampunk western, but no one talks about it because they talk about Briscoe County. You should talk about Legend. Legend is they, wonderful. They are at least as good as one another. That's in a box. Okay. Uh, but seriously, <laughs> why, Legend. Why do you have so many boxes in your apartment? <laughs> because the cats like boxes. All right, moving on. Legend is great. Also great, Robocop the series. Yeah. Only came up like the one time, but man, what a good show. If you liked The Flash in the 1990s, mm. It's the closest in tone to it. It's a little broad, but the broadness actually works because it's a broad satire, and <laughs> the visual effects are pretty good. RoboCop looks really good. You got a fun supporting cast of crazy villains and everything. It's a really fun show, and I hope really, more people yeah. see it. Yeah, more, I really do. Very intelligent. Uh, next one up, no big surprise. We've talked about it plenty. Is Voyagers uh, smart show? Good characters. Uh, had it lasted a few more seasons, I think it really would have honed in on something truly great and would have been remembered. But as it stands, it is, it's still an impressive accomplishment. It was not a cheap show. It's a big show. Yeah. Like you could watch it today, and it holds up way better than most other TV of the era because it never feels like they took a bunch of cheap. Shortcuts, yeah, yeah, and that probably didn't help it. Like mm. not in when it, when uh, renewal time came around because it was expensive, but still really cool. Um, and then our number one runner up, which we really didn't talk about very much, mm-hmm. Silver Surfer. Silver Surfer scratched my Star Trek itch, yeah, and, and not just because Star Trek writers worked on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, it it really transposed not just the look of the old nineteen uh, sixties Silver Surfer comics. And, and the 1970s psychedelia that came up with it a little bit later. Uh, it also brought with it th- that whole era of science fiction. It, when sci-fi was dealing less with spectacle and thrill and more with big cosmic ideas. It was ambitious. Yeah. But it wasn't ambitious visually. It was. Amb- it, was it looked great. Mm. But it was ambitious narratively. And when yeah. you compare S- Silver Surfer mm. to the other superhero shows that were on in the 90s, even mm. the good ones... 
even like X-Men, like the only show I think that could consistently hold up in terms of the amount of thought and care that went into every aspect of the show, mm. from casting to animation to the writing to the themes, the only one I would put on the same level as Batman the Animated Series. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's a that's different fair. type of show, but they both have that exact same level of wow. This is way better than you'd think it would be. Yeah, yeah. Like even if you thought it was going to be okay, <clears throat> this is classic TV level. Mm-hmm. So seriously, this show needs a resurgence. This show needs a proper good DVD release. You can find it online pretty easily. But yeah, we need to bring back on some level, at least mm-hmm. on Hulu or something. Silver Surfer, what a great show. Yeah, yeah. But the best show that we reviewed this season, and you may have noticed it's the one we haven't mentioned yet that we really liked. <laughs> yeah. Blood Drive! It's Blood Drive! The executives assigned to this show decided to test it in Jersey. As a result, they think you mouth breathers are too stupid to understand my masterpiece. So listen up, dum-dums, and let me set the stage. The world is broken. No one has any food. Oil costs 2000 a barrel, and the only way out of this shitty life is a secret road race with a $10 million cash prize. But there's a twist. All the cars run on human blood. Welcome to Blood Drive. We we were looking for shows to to sort of fill out a month's worth of of our schedule and well we, we do every September we yeah, do shows that were recently canceled right so we were looking through like just trailers for all of the shows that had recently been canceled we had a list a lot of these we hadn't even heard of and uh, yeah we saw the preview for Blood Drive and it's like it takes place in the future and they feed people into cars. That's just stupid enough. Yeah, we're definitely doing that. Because well, a lot of the stuff that we did this year was like kind of general. Like we did living biblically, mm. which left no impression, even though it sounds like a train wreck. It was just kind of bland. Yeah. But like, yeah, Blood Drive took a weird premise, ran with it so far. <laughs> it ran so far it met the Silver Surfer in space. <laughs> like that's how far it ran with the craziest okay. concept ever. And yet. Even though the movie, the movie, the show is is manic and crazy and full of weird stuff you would never see in any other show, you do like the characters. You yeah. do believe the characters. There's just enough of an emotional hook in this that you care to get to the next weird thing, and you don't get exhausted with it, even when you binge it. Yeah. So Blood Drive needs a cult following. Blood mm. Drive needs bigger and bigger audiences. So if you listen to us for any of the shows that we've done, track down these five. <laughs> Legend, Robocop the Series, Voyagers, Silver Surfer, Blood Drive. They're all genre e-shows. There were other shows that we liked. I want to give a quick shout out to um, uh, what, what else did we like? Uh, the mm. Mayor. It was yeah, really, the really mayor. good sitcom. We just wanted to give an extra mm. uh, a bonus shout out to. Um, I'm trying to think. Dead Last was really adorable. I did like Dead Last a lot. Collector's Item is a fun little weird historical footnote Mm -hmm. with Vincent Price and Peter Lorre as uh, antique dealers who fall into a mystery. (laughs) I I have a fantasy of going to CBS All Access and pitching a reboot. That would be great. I would love (laughs) all of that. Nightmare Classics is a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. One of the episodes is kind of crap, but the rest of them are really good. um, Bionic Woman had a lot going for it, actually. Uh, I I did like Bionic Woman. Um, there's Pan some that, Am I really liked you not so much. Uh, not, but I not really as liked much. That. Um, th- there were some shows that kind of surprised me. I expected them to suck, and they turned out to be okay. Like uh, there was one episode of VR Five mm. that I actually thought was really kind of insightful, good drama. Is it that, the one about the guy in Death Row? 
No, it was actually oh. the the one about the where she became a bank robber. Oh yeah, that was fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that kind of gave, not only gave insight to the character, but really kind of stretched this really bizarre premise into a new type of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And that was actually a, a good way to handle that. Uh, one show that I wanted to nominate for more things, but other stuff just kept getting pushed mm-hmm. forward was the reboot of Dark Shadows with uh, yeah. Joseph Gordon-Levitt mm-hmm. and Ben Cross. And yeah, it a bit of a rocky start, but by the end of it, it was really kind of gorgeous and gothic and fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so. There's tons of stuff, and we had a really great journey this mm. last year. Our journey begins anew mm. uh, next week, because we'll be back with a slightly delayed... Sorry but that. It was going to be the month of May, yeah. but instead it's going to be however much space it takes up. Uh, Chris Carter month. <laughs> uh, because we're going to do Harsh Realm, we're going to do Lone Gunman, and he actually did a couple other things, and we're having a little trouble tracking them down. They used to be more readily available, but now mm. they're harder. So we're going to do what we can here. But at the very least, next week, we, we're going to be reviewing we, Harsh Realm. We, we've promised you at least two Chris Carter series. So. Yes. We were going to do like four or five, but we might only be able to track down two or three. But we're going to do them. Oh. And we are starting with Harsh Realm, which is the virtual reality show that Chris Carter did. So it's not VR5. Mm. It's another. It came out a little later, I think. It's VR six. It's <laughs> VR more. <laughs> um, so thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody who voted. Once again, if you go to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash critic acclaim, you can vote for the awards next year. And in the meantime, uh, we have polls to decide future episodes of this show. Uh, we have a ton of bonus content. We have a new podcast called All Our Yesterdays, where we review every single Star Trek episode ever. We have commentary tracks that we're going to start coming out with. Uh, we have Only the Best. We're reviewing every single nominee for Best Picture ever. We have the Cancel Too Soon Monthly Movie. That will be the subject of a poll really soon. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a ton of cool exclusive stuff there for you to enjoy. We appreciate everybody who helps us out. And if if not, if you can't afford it, we totally understand. But hey, we, we follow pre- us on Twitter. We're at Cancel Casting Critic Acclaim. That, that's all free, and we appreciate your listenership regardless. Yeah, we have a Facebook page for Critically Acclaimed and Cancel Too Soon. If you want to join us there, take part in various conversations. Um, you can find us everywhere online, but I'm on Twitter at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And um, I guess that's a wrap. We'll see you next season. Thank you, Ronnie. <laughs>